By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They're the place to go online for setting up a simulator in your home or your business. They've got all the major brands of launch monitors like Foresight, SkyTrack, Unicore, and FlightScope. And they make enclosures, screens, hitting mats, pretty much anything you're going to need for your indoor studio. If you need help, you can give them a call directly, talk to their experts. You can ask for Gerald or Hunter. I know they've helped plenty of other Sweet Spot listeners and they can help you decide what's going to fit in your garage, media room, and basement based on your budget and technology requirements. So thanks for their support, and you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. So today we have now a second-time guest on The Sweet Spot, the founder of Decade Golf, Scott Fawcett. Scott, what's up, man? Just living the dream, buddy, trying to get as many balls in the air as possible so I can just perennially chasing my tail. And declutter your inbox from what it sounds like, too, from our conversation earlier. <laughs> is, zero, is zero inbox a realistic strat? No, we're not doing that episode. <laughs> I want to get to zero text message. Like, that would be amazing. I've got just 50 texts that I just, it's, yeah, whatever. I gave up on my inbox years ago. I think I got like 2,000 on there now. It's just a, a red number. I just see that as the icon now. I think it's incredible. You see some people like 10 or 15,000. I feel like Chris Zambria saw his phone one time and it was like 19,000. I'm like, how much spam have you signed up for <laughs> that you've never gotten rid of? So now everyone listening will know if you email Adam or Scott and don't get a response, it's in the queue. All right. So last time we spoke to you about T-Shot or we tried to talk to you about T-Shot strategy and then 
I don't even remember what we ended up talking about. It got off into philosophical la-la land. I do remember you getting uncomfortable. I don't have a clue what we talked about, but I do remember getting you uncomfortable at least yeah, at one point. Yeah, probably it got into the architecture stuff, and then you, you started getting a little thorny, and I was like, uh, I don't know about that. I've got a big, I've got a big one I'm working on right now that I can't mention. But if I get to do what I was asked to do over the weekend, the GCA's heads will explode. It is unbelievable the potential moonlighting gig that I've got coming up. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe I'll have to start a separate podcast series on that. <laughs> oh man, this one's unbelievable. So today. We have Scott on. We want to talk about, I mean, we've gotten a lot of requests from listeners of the show who fall into a few different buckets. And this is in relation to playing tournament golf or competitive golf. You know, we have some people who are interested in in potentially like dipping their feet in the water. They want to start playing in some tournaments. I know we have a lot of people who listen who are tournament players, even some people who play in the same tournaments as I do. And then some people who are just kind of curious, like, what, what's it like to play in a tournament? So I figured we would hit record and talk about tournament golf, competitive golf, and and see where we end up. Love it. I played my first golf tournament 18 months, uh, two weeks ago, so I've got some personal experience as well to dwell on. <laughs> well, I think I think the three of us have fairly different tournament experience. Adam, from what it sounds like, you were a pretty good junior player, correct? My story is I started too late to enter a lot of things. So I started at 15, and by the time I was 18, I was off scratch two, something like that. And so you can only really enter the big tournaments, the big amateur tournaments then. And so I had entered a few, and I I got to play for the county as well and won my game. But after that, I just went off to university, so I don't have a lot of tournament playing experience. And then after that, I just became a, a teaching pro. And as you know, once you become a teaching pro, you don't play golf. Kind of goes out the window, <laughs> yeah, for yeah. the most part. But at least you're advising players who are playing in tournaments quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And Scott, why don't you, aside from you know, decade, I know you're working with some of the top tour players, lead amateurs in the world. Why don't you talk a little bit about your tournament experience as well? You know, I actually, I really am like the poster boy. If, if I could design someone to work with, it really would be my younger self because I didn't really specialize in golf almost until I got to college. I only played in one AJGA event in my life. Then I got to college and I won a couple times my freshman year. So I was going to transfer to A&M and I had to sit out for a year and a half. I got to A&M and played the spring of my third year and the fall of my fourth year before breaking my leg because I'm an idiot playing basketball with the D1 basketball team at midnight every single night. Shockingly, that ended in injury. And then I didn't play golf my last year and a half. So by the time I graduated, I actually got a job in real estate for about a month. My birthday is July 4th. And I literally hadn't touched my clubs more than a couple times in a year. And I went out to my home course here in Dallas at Glen Eagles. And I shot 67 and literally had not played golf in forever. You know, you're watching the fireworks, you're having cocktails. I got all teary eyed and I'm like, screw it. I'm a professional golfer. <laughs> and I literally <laughs> quit my job the next day. I told my dad, he was like, what? And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm really a pretty unique guy that I just didn't have very much tournament experience. Like people ask me, why didn't you do better than when you were in your 20s? I'm like, honestly, looking back at it, I hadn't played, I bet, in but I hadn't played in 40 or 50, 54 hole or longer events in my life when I turned professional. 
I just didn't have any experience. And so even though I did, well, what's funny is I actually won a professional golf tournament a month later. And then one of a couple 72 events on the Hooters tour and other places, but just didn't really have enough time to kind of put it all together. Then I got my amateur status back and I, I played some tournaments in 2008 and nine. I actually entered Q schools as a 35 year old with a full-time job and got through all four stages so then I went back and tried to play professional golf again. Now this time with a full-time job and trying to play professional golf on the side, which is about as good of an idea as it sounds like. And so, you know, that's essentially when I got my amateur status back my second time. And honestly, the biggest thing I would say that's helped my game is just caddying for people in the years, the 20, you know, obviously for Zalatoris when he won the Texas Salmon U.S. Junior and guys like Doc Redman and Kramer Hickok have helped them out some caddying out on tour. So really, my experience comes down to being a total lunatic who had no idea how to play strategically, which is funny since it's now what I teach, but then honestly getting to step aside from the game and just view it with no emotion as a caddy. I mean, again, I really wanted to help Zalatoris win the Texas Salmon U.S. Junior, but it wasn't like it was me playing where you are totally attached to outcome. And it's funny because that's one of the main things that I would say for the people listening is... And it's easy to say this, man, and it's impossible to do, but that's what makes it hard to do or makes it what, you know, good tournament results so great is it's just hard to not care. And ultimately, like for me as a 48 year old, the only term, if, if I had, even if I played a full year of, you know, season of events, sure, I would love to win the Texas Sam or whatever, but a week later, I wouldn't care. The only tournament I care to play in and win is the U.S. Mid-Am. And that's only because it would get me in the Masters. And so it's just funny, like it's hard not to put too much pressure on this one event every single year, but that ultimately is what you just have to do. That's the first place is you really do have to just remove attachment to outcome score. I actually feel like we've talked about this before, John, on the side, when you were going into play in either a Met professional event or a big event up there for you. And I was just like, you know, it's just hard because you were kind of feeling the pressure, like here I am running this golf site and just not caring and kind of what I said, and it's honestly my view as I go in to try to chase the champions tour, anyone who's rooting against me, well, I don't care. Like if I'm going to be embarrassed, if I go out and shoot a million, the only people that are going to enjoy that are people that don't like me. And so it really does take a lot of courage. Just like, well, then I just don't care. Like whatever the people that really do like me, hopefully you and Adam are rooting for me. And if I shoot a million and be like, Hey, you know, Keep trying, man. You'll get better. And, and that's, I think, the hardest thing to do is you don't want to embarrass yourself. But at the end of the day, nobody else cares about your results at all. And the only ones who do are hoping you fail and screw them, you know, whatever. Well, as I was preparing for this episode, I, I often go on long, long walks and think. And I kept coming back to this one memory from my past tournament season, and I'll just quickly summarize. I'm somewhere in between Adam and Scott with my experience. I, I would call myself a late blooming mid amateur. So I've probably logged over a hundred stroke play tournament rounds over the last five or six years and slowly getting better in my area. So yeah, never going to play pro, but I've played in pro events at this point, low level pro events and some high level amateur events and gained a lot of experience. And to get to the point where no one cares, I was this past summer, I had some really good results. And, you know, my wife was very proud of me and she was telling one of her best friends. And we were at a kid's soccer game that weekend. And 
the husband, also my friend, he was like, yeah, I heard, you know, I heard about this term. He did really well. And, and he, he is not much of a golfer and doesn't know anything about it. And he's like, I was just talking about, it. I'm like super excited. He's like, so what do you get? I'm like, what do you mean? What do I get? Like, <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, I've climbed this enormous mountain and slayed the dragon. And he's like, you don't get anything for that. I'm like, well, it was hard. <laughs> and like, it just put it into like perspective, like, especially like if you're someone who plays in like regional amateur tournaments, like outside of a very small group of people, no one cares. Like no one knows what's going on. Like no one knows about these tournaments. Like even the U.S. Mid-Am, which is a significant tournament, a master's invite is on the line. Like no one even follows that tournament. Like that just kind of falls by the wayside. So it's interesting you bring up that point because I think one of the biggest struggles as a competitive player is that it's so easy to get obsessed with the results and did I make it or not? Am I going to top 10 it or not? What are people going to think of me at my golf club or whatever? Like, you know, for me, sometimes I'll share my results on social media. I know Scott, you will too. And the truth of the matter is, is like no one really cares. And if they do care or rooting against you, then it's like, well, that that's a whole other scenario. So I always come back to that like conversation I have with my buddy and he was just like, what do you like? I don't even know what this is. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it's, it's similar just to, honestly, like what's hard is, is I'm, I'm going to try to start creating more content now that I've hired a few more people and I'm trying to get my life organized to where I can. But even when Mark Crossfield came over from London to play some golf and go to some basketball games. I played really good the day before at, Vic at Vicaro here in Dallas. It was windy. And as a result, like it just, the, the audio wasn't working. Like it just wasn't going to be a good video, but I shot like even or one or two under on a hard course on a hard day. And then we didn't use that video. And then we went to a course here, Lakewood in Dallas. And it's a great course, but it's a kind of a classic old tiny course with some weird dog legs and stuff on it. And I just played awful. And it was just funny because I'm like, God dang it. Could we've just used yesterday's video because now I'm going to look like a donkey. And it just, it is like, I get into the comments on, on Mark's YouTube video and everybody's like, why are we watching these two guys shoot about 80? And I'm like, <laughs> ah, I can play. I had elbow surgery on both my elbows last year. I haven't played golf in a year and a half. And I'm like, I can't not want to correct people and be like, come to Dallas. I'll play for whatever you can put together. Like, but at the end of the day, like it's some random dipshit on YouTube in the <laughs> comments. Like, what am I doing trying to actually talk to them? It's just hard to not care. It's impossible to not care. Yeah, exactly. It, it's so difficult not to have that ego. I know that I know that you train that. I know you're very deep into the f philosophy of Sam Harris. And, you know, I've read lots of books on Buddhism and things like that. And, and I've, I've tried my hardest to get rid of the ego. And it's certainly much less dominant in my life than it used to be in my 20s. But the thought, what you do, I think is very brave. The fact that you're going out and playing tournament golf when there are people on Twitter looking at you. Because I, I know it's, it's almost like a a lose-lose scenario in a way, unless you play lights out and you win everything. But you know, golf's not that type of game where you can go out and win every tournament. When that's the thing that's hard is honestly, like I, I, I don't do a lot of playing lessons because I just don't want the kid, like I did one just a couple weeks ago and the kid didn't play very well. And I could just tell he's nervous. It's just like, it's kind of impossible not to be. But then part of my other reason is like a little bit of ego where like by definition, if I go to a hundred playing lessons a year, 
about half of them are not going to play very well in, you know, like relative to what I consider good. And it's just like, it's just not much fun to, to sit out there and not make excuses for your own game while you're teaching somebody how easy it is to score. And kind of like you said, like, you know, I, I definitely get myself in enough trouble on Twitter and social media that I've just, I've got plenty. I've got probably in the thousands actively rooting against me as I try to regain my game. And there's just no guarantee that I will, obviously. I mean, I hope these surgeries went well, but there's certainly no guarantee. I'm not going to just, this is going to sound terrible, but just be a plus two or three for the rest of my life and not actually get back to the higher level that I want to get to. You know, for people who, and I, I've not solved this myself, but I've gotten a lot better at it with experience in terms of like crossing over from a recreational player to a competitive player. I think you need to make a decision no different than a a normal golfer. You have to make a decision like, why am I doing this? Why am I playing? And primarily for me, it's like, I just like to see how far I can push myself. Like it's mostly a selfish endeavor for me where like, I want to see how good I can get. I enjoy the fight. I enjoy like being in the moment and feeling like I have a chance to make it or not make it and going through that, those feelings. Like I literally enjoy that. It's fun for me. And then there is the element of this building in public thing because I do have a golf website, but most people listening to this aren't in that spot. So they're, they don't have to worry about that. Maybe it's more of like their friends or their, you know, their golfing buddies are like, Oh, I don't want to go to shoot at 90 in this tournament. Cause then they're going to see it online and make fun of me. But you know, the point is, is like when you step into the arena, so to speak, you mostly have to be playing for yourself and your own enjoyment and accept what's going to happen one way or the other. And I, I think one of the, topics I want to get into is what is just different about tournament play because it is different. But for me, it's mostly like I'm doing this for myself. I want to just see how good I can get. And when I stop enjoying that, then I will stop doing these tournaments because I don't want it to ruin my enjoyment of the game. Personally, I'm just a better human when I am like pursuing golf. It helps organize you. Well, yeah. I mean, I was putting a lot of effort into poker in the 2003 through 2006 timeline but poker, you're kind of sitting around way too often and drinking and everything. But at least <laughs> like with golf, like if I'm actively pursuing being better at golf, like this weekend, I just joined Merido Golf Club here in Dallas. It is an amazing place. I went out on Friday to hit balls for the first time. Our this They've been building this lifetime fitness by my house for three years now that keeps on getting shut down and back and forth from the pandemic. It literally opened on Friday also. And I went and I practiced and then I went there and I did a good hard workout. Yesterday, I went and practiced for three hours. I chipped and putted for the first time literally in probably two years. I just really like I grinded for two out of three days. And I'll say like I was sitting there last night just exhausted and probably the happiest I've been in a long time. And it's just like, I don't want to say it's the pursuit of like, the senior tour or whatever. It's just the pursuit of doing something besides nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I don't want to say it gives meaning to your life, but well, it does. I, it, I mean, in, in a way it does. Like for me, like I'm looking, you know, they just released the schedule of my events for the year and the courses we're going to get to play. And I'm like, yeah, I'm working out, I'm lifting weights, I'm working on my swing speed. Like it does organize me and get me pumped up for the year. And it's something I look forward to. Are those hard? To, I should come up and play in one of those. Could someone from Dallas come up and play like at one of the cool courses or anything? I know you played Beth Page one. Is there, is there anything that's pretty cool? Like that'd be fun to come up there and play golf tournament with you. 
if you want to get into the Met Open, so there's there's a couple of pro events we have locally, the Long Island Open, the Met Open. There's open qualifiers for those. And you win the Met Open, I think you get 45 grand. Assuming you're a professional? Yeah, if you're a professional. I mean, there's plenty of amateurs playing. I haven't gotten in. That's the one I want to get into still. But I've gotten into the Long Island Open a couple of times. That's a lower level one, but it's a pro tournament still. Uh, and you get to play great courses. I feel like that's the one we talked about, right? Basically, yeah. as you were leading into it a couple of years ago. Yeah, that was the one. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll share the story of what actually happened in that round later on. Well, I do. I just think it's cool. Again, like the 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 people. Again, everyone listening at home, like you just can't use. I don't want to shoot ninety and have my buddies make fun of me because the 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 quit back to that is like cool. I guess you're just living a better life by sitting on your butt. But again, that's the hardest thing to possibly do. I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done. I mean, again, like, like Adam was referring to like some stoicism and some meditation and really what the point of the meditation stuff that I talk about so often is once you find yourself, it's not to not have those thoughts. I used to, when I was younger, think it was about not having those thoughts being so mentally strong. You just didn't have them like, no, those thoughts are still coming. You're just prepared for them. And if you keep ruminating on them, then you click into an act of meditation or something like that. And, and I, again, I used to feel pretty weird talking about it so openly because it just feels so woo wooey. But at the end of the day now, it is what Michael Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, Phil Jackson, Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, all the great coaches and players in all the sports, now that we've got a little bit more access to them through social media and through books with George Mumford's book talking about working with guys like Kobe and LeBron and Michael. And it's just amazing when you actually see it. And again, Tiger specifically, the day before he had his car wreck, his playing lesson was with Jada Pinkett Smith. And they were talking about meditation and mindfulness. And she goes, well, when did you start meditating? And he, and he just was like smirked like, when I was born. And I was like, that's amazing too. He finally said that out loud. I've kind of known that for a while, but to have actually put it on the record, that's what it is. Like we used to think he was playing golf hypnotized or what is the zone? The zone is just a moving meditation. And the, again, the point of this podcast is to try to get these people who want to play tournament golf adversity is coming. I mean, that's what I text my players every Sunday when they're going into a final round in the lead. Adversity is coming. This, this was not going to be easy today. I used to, whenever I was playing professional golf turns, think I'm going to play great today. Well, even if you play great, something bad's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And it's just ignorant. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. ignorant to think I'm going to just get through this and to be not prepared for it. But once you're prepared for it, then it's like, okay, like, the joke is kind of like if, if something happens that you should have expected to happen, you can't be mad or surprised about it. Like if I walked up to you and instead of shake your hand, punched you in the face, you could be mad about that because you weren't expecting it. But if you're expecting it, then you're kind of the one that's dumb for walking up to me. Like, you know, certain things are going to happen throughout the course of a round of golf and you just have to be ready for it. That's really the in my my notes here. I'm not sure we'll get to all my questions and thoughts, but I wanted to acknowledge what is different about playing in a tournament let's let's call it you know a stroke play event where you're just you know you're signed up whether it's a qualifier or you know some states and cities just have you know certain events where you you have a certain handicap you sign up and you're gonna play two or three rounds and there's a cut and then you know now you're entering a different realm of golf versus you know your saturday morning match with your buddies where (laughs) There's some gimmies, there's some X's on the scorecard. Let's talk about like what's 
actually like I, I know a lot of things that I think are different about it, but like what comes to mind for you? Like what is different about a stroke play event versus just like the other forms of recreational golf? Obviously just the fact you've got to put everything out. Like it's it's funny because I entered Q school two years ago and I hadn't really played in a golf tournament in a little while. And it is kind of awkward on that first hole when you have to tap in a two foot putt. Like if you haven't done it in a long time, it's just weird. You know, but so much of what I try to get people to do is really get out of the format or where you stand to par. And again, I'm speaking purely utopian here, but every shot in isolation, it doesn't matter if it's match play. It doesn't matter if it's stroke play. It really is about attacking each shot with an optimal target and full commitment to that target and whatever your swing key of the day is and just being present when you hit that shot. I mean, where it gets harder is when people get into match play and they think, well, gosh, my, this guy just hit it close. So now do I get more aggressive? It's just exhausting to constantly be running all these iterations in your head of how you should be working your way strategically around a golf course. I mean, there's an example from when we played Sean Croker in the U S junior, I think it was either the third or fourth round of the U S junior with Zalatoris. He had hit it to what we thought was like five feet and so we actually did. And this is one of the main reasons that I tell people, I don't care what the situation is. You just don't change strategy is because we thought he hit it to five feet. We did get a little bit more aggressive to a front right pin and Will did kind of flare it a little bit, miscarrying this bunker by a yard, bounce back into the bunker. Like if we'd played still with the correct decade target and mindset, he actually would have hit it close. But then because the green was elevated just a little bit, by the time we got up there, he was actually about eight or nine feet which given that exact situation is like a probably a 35 to 45% putt. And that's the challenge in golf is whenever you start trying to really take the situation, the match play or the stroke play or whatever, you just rarely know what's going to happen until the person is inside of about five feet. I mean, even Patrick Cantlay, one of the best golfers on the planet had the most basic putt on the 18th hole yesterday that is on perfect greens and whatever. And, and the thing didn't even come close to going in. You just don't know because, and I'm not saying hit a bad putt. I'm just saying because of bumps and bounces and just whatever, you just don't know until they get it really, really, really close to the hole. And so again, it's a utopian answer, but I think that you just stay completely oblivious to what's going on, what you are to par, what you think your opponents are doing. Just try to shoot the best score you can and then see what happens. By sticking to the same strategy, right? Well, that's, I mean, Stuart Sink quote. I mean, Stuart Sink obviously hadn't won in 12 years. He bought the decade app the week before he won in Napa a year and a half ago now. And then, you know, I was like, that's pretty cool. He, he had won 12 years and then he won the next week. And then when he won again in Hilton Head, I went on PGA Tour Radio the day after he won. And then he came on the day after I spoke and they're asking him about it. And he was like, you know, the process is super simple. It picks a great target. Most importantly though, I'm just not constantly being exhausted with thinking all the time. He's like on the course. Then again, this isn't a, I'm trying not to make this a decade sales pitch, but to have a guy like Stuart Sink just be like, you know, it keeps me fresh. It's pretty simple. And I like using it. Like, I don't know what else you can say because are there times you could or couldn't get more aggressive in certain situations? There are maybe by a yard or two, but in order to find that situation, you have to be thinking about it constantly. You don't get to just on this one hole be like, here's a situation where I'll get more aggressive. You've got to constantly be looking for it. And again, that's, I think, one of the main things that anyone who's played much tournament golf, especially if you've played any of these 
USGA events where you get into match play and you're playing 36 holes a couple days in a row, it's simply exhausting. Even just a 72, 54, 72 hole event. If you're out there thinking constantly, I mean, that's one thing Kramer Hickok, he and I talked about a number of times back, you know, a few years ago where he's just like, I just can't figure out what I should be thinking at any given moment. And I was like, I can literally remember having that exact same thought. What should I be thinking? And and what I can tell you is unless you're actively considering a golf shot, that answer is nothing. There is nothing to be thinking about. Be thinking about anything other than golf. There is no reason to be running all these, again, iterations of leaderboards, cuts. What's the top 10? What's top 25? There's four spots. What's that going to take like? Who knows, man? Just pick good targets. Hit your shotgun shot pattern at it and see what happens. Yeah, for those who don't know, if this is the first time you've listened to Scott, Scott's system, Decade, is a system for picking optimal targets. So a course strategy system, I'm sure it's more in-depth than that. But just uh, whenever Scott refers to Decade, that's what he means. That's a reasonable thing to point out. Yeah. The thought that I have going from someone who had like very little competitive pedigree to someone who started playing a lot of these events was that when you step into a tournament versus a normal round of golf is I feel like every initially when you're when you're not as experienced, this is you know talking to someone who's maybe thinking about it, like everything is heightened. And what I mean by that is like you know, think of like some of the shots that make you uncomfortable on the golf course. Like for me, that that could be, you know, I've had situations in the past season where I had a really great round going and all of a sudden I got this, I remember it was in the Long Island Amateur. I was, I think I was even or one under through nine or 10 and I got on a par five. I, I, I couldn't get to it in two, but I got as close as I could. And I had a 30 yard shot over a bunker where they had mode, you know, when like the grain changes, you could see it where they like have the grass coming at you versus into it. So I'm like, oh boy, I've got the shot that makes me the most uncomfortable where I have to pick it perfectly, let fly it over this bunker to a green that is very firm and sloped. Use the bounce. Yeah, exactly. And I, and, and you know, it's like physically I know what to do, right? Like I've spoken to enough wedge gurus at this point where I'm like, yeah, I know what to do. But me with my patterns as a golfer, I'm like, oh, I just stepped up to it. I'm like, I knew I was uncomfortable. If I had stepped up to it in a normal round, like, yeah, I would have been fine, gotten on the green. And I just picked it a little heavy and, and dumped it in the bunker and made a really sloppy bogey. But that's a perfect example, even after as much experience as I have now, is that you know, you have to expect the unexpected. Like the first season I was playing, like my first tournament playing was a U.S. Open qualifier. And I actually played pretty well. I think I shot a 75. And then I, I got a little like, you know, conceited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to the next one and destroy this short course. And I think I shot like an 85. I had the shanks like out of nowhere. And one of the things I would tell the people who are thinking about it or just getting started is that you have to know that this is possible, like shots that you might not consider or even like get scared about, like all of a sudden you're looking at it or like a tee shot or an approach shot and you just start seeing things that you don't normally see. And that's part of the process of getting better is being comfortable in these situations as the pressure increases. I'm sure you remember this. Do you remember if you finally said, okay, screw it and just totally committed to the shot or did you hit it kind of tentatively no that was uh, that was one of the shots for the day that i was not committed on and i knew it and i and you know what and as soon as i hit it i i forgave myself for it 
I was okay well, with to. it because I was on a good run. It was a really tough golf course and I was going into the tough stretch and I'm like, that's okay. Yeah, you can get past that. I'll think about it after the round. I'm a huge Daniel Tosh fan and he's got this great <laughs> bit where he talks about, he's like, if you ever see somebody running at you and he's got a bunch of people chasing you and he yells at you, do you know how to fly a plane? You better muster up some courage and say, yep. <laughs> and that's kind of what I say about like shots like that, like, yeah, no, this... I don't have a clue how to fly a plane. I'd better muster up some courage though and figure out this shot. I know how to hit it. And what's the alternative? Hit it kind of tentatively and probably dump it 50% of the time versus, yep, I'm going to try to fly this plane and screw it and dumping it only 20% of the time. I mean, again, it's just a hard shot. And that's part of accepting reality is like, yeah, there's a pretty good chance this isn't going to go well. And the only way it's going to go well is if I just commit to not caring. And then if, if I hit a bad shot, I hit a bad shot. And again, totally utopian view, but it is correct. And again, so somewhere from totally freaking out and totally not caring, we're just trying to get you somewhere on the distribution curve closer to not caring. That's, that's really the goal. And that's, you know, one of the things that we track in the decade app sponsored by Adam Young (laughs) is the mental (laughs) scorecard where Dr. Michael Larden, who I work with, who works with Zalatoris, he's worked at Duval, Mickelson, like he's a great, great sports psychiatrist out of San Diego. This mental scorecard, you're basically just black or white, pass or fail. Did I know exactly what I was trying to do with the shot? And, you know, shot shape, landing point, exact target. And then when I pulled the trigger, was I just 100% present and committed? It is black or white. And it's, there is no gray area. If you're thinking, eh, then that's a no. It is either, yes, I was committed, or it is quite obviously you were not. And it's really hard to not let results of a shot impact that decision or that judgment, but you're trying to get that scorecard up to about 95% of all shots. So we, you discount penalty shots and even one foot tap-ins, they count. And so, you know, if you shoot, uh, let's just call it, if you shoot 80, 80 times, uh, oh, gee whiz, 80 times 0.95 is 76. So that's, you know, four times around that you're not committed to a shot. That's amazing. Most people that shoot around 80, you're probably going to be about 85 or 86% somewhere in there. As my players, guys like Maverick and Doc and Will and whoever that have tracked this thing all the way from college through the Corn Ferry Tour and then onto the PGA Tour, most of those guys start at about 90% when we start working when they're in college and they all get it up to about 95 or 97%. And if there's any one thing that I do believe is just mandatory to make it as a tour player, it's being able to be committed to about 95% of your shots. Simply nobody's good enough to hit more than a couple uncommitted shots a day. And again, if you take this data and you extrapolate it backwards, what we wind up doing is we take every hole that comes in with a perfect mental scorecard and we compare it relative to par with every scorecard that comes in with a negative mental scorecard event on it. And just generically in the app, it's a half to three quarters of a shot for people who shoot in the 70s. Now, again, I do think that it's hard to remove outcome, but when the guys that I trust are tracking it, specifically Maverick, Zalatoris, and myself, it's about a quarter to a third of a shot. So now take that 80 shooter and pretend that he actually is at about 85 or so percent. Well, that's going to be 12 shots around that he's not committed to by his own estimation. I literally think it's about three to six shots, probably in that four-ish, four to five range. If they could get not even to 100%, we're just talking about getting it to like 92, 95%. 
And again, that's the thing whenever I've gone and caddied for people, I think that without them realizing what we've done is we've just gotten their mental scorecard closer to a hundred percent than they ever do on their own. Because at a minimum, we're going to have an exact target shape club distance. At a minimum, we're going to have a perfect target. Now it's up to them to pull the trigger committed. But once they understand why we're picking the targets, I mean, again, I think that's what a guy like Stuart Sink, it's not like he doesn't understand, you know, decade intuitively from 40 years of playing professional golf, but understanding why you've chosen certain targets allows you to commit to them better. And then so much of this winds up just taking care of itself. And so really for the guys at home, like, you know, again, you, you can track it in the decade app and then we relate it back to the GPS statistics and the whole things, but just doing that on your own, trying to get that mental scorecard up to 95%, you just won't believe how quickly that will improve your scores. When you talk about commitment, what are you saying there? Hitting a shot without fear? Is that basically what commitment is or is, does it mean something different to you? That's probably a pretty good, fair word. I, I never would have thought of it that way, but Lacking fear and accepting results is probably a good way to judge if you were committed to the shot or not. Again, like John, immediately after dumping in the bunker, didn't think, well, I was committed to that one. Like he kind of knew I wasn't ready to hit that shot or I was just, I, I pulled the trigger too uncomfortable. That's probably a good way of saying it, but it really is just, was I there and was I committed my target? Meaning like, let's pretend that a pin is four yards from the left. My target for whatever reason is five yards right of it. I'm really trying to hit the shot five yards right of it. I'm not aiming over there and then hoping I pull it, which is, I mean, it's just comical how often I hear tour players say they do that six or eight times around. I really do think if there's any one thing, I I definitely understand that great instructors like Butch Harmons and Chuck Cooks and those guys, Randy Smith here in Dallas, Scotty Scheffler's coach who just won yesterday, obviously. Those guys, in my experience, all gave great playing lessons all decade really did is quantify what those great playing lessons did. But if there's any one thing that I do think that I've brought to the game that I personally had never heard anyone talk about before was this idea that if you're aiming away from a pin and then hoping you pull or push it, that is, I think, where outlier shots come from. And so a huge part of the mental scorecard is just picking that good target and then really trying to put it there. It's why it's why I've got that video that I post all the time with Tiger whenever he was in the booth at the Hero, you know, however, six, seven years ago now. And they asked him, they said, you know, Tigers, you've gotten older. Did you play more aggressively or more conservatively? And Tiger's answer was, oh, aggressively, 100%. I've always played very aggressively, but I play aggressively to my spots, which might be a little bit more on the conservative side, but I'm still playing aggressively to that spot. And I'm like, Wow. This guy's so good, he literally doesn't even understand the question. The question wasn't, do you pick good targets and then try to hit it there? The question, do you play aggressively, is do you fire at more or less pins? Not, do you fire at your spot more? I mean, it really is just incredible. The guy's so good at it, he doesn't even understand the question. And he thought he answered the question probably brilliantly. Like, yeah, that was a great answer. Like, no, it wasn't. You should have said, no, I play very conservatively because that's what he does. And again, I hate the words conservative and aggressive because they're too laden with emotions. But if you wanted to use a word that is correct for golf strategy, it would be very aggressive off the tee and on the conservative side into greens. Yeah, I think in terms of, you know, with that situation I found myself in where like the lie just overpowered my consciousness, like for whatever reason in that moment. We've all been there. We've all been there. And in the context of tournament player or, or just golf in general, getting more comfortable. It's like, and this commitment thing, it's like, I always 
think it's like peeling back the layers on an onion. Like as you get more and more experience and you go through these things and you can adjust and see what happens like that same very day in that tournament, I managed to get uh, my back nine the the course got much harder, but I managed to get into a 10 for seven playoff. There's 32 spots in match play at the Long Island Amateur. I ended up making it on the number to the playoff. So it was a par three over water, 155 to clear the water. I think it was 170 something to the back of the hole. Great golf hole at Noyak Golf Club out east on Long Island. And it was me against nine college kids. And I wasn't even nervous because it was fun in terms of like talking about the situation and commitment level. Like I knew what the right decision was when I stepped up to it. The pin was right over the water. And I knew that these kids were going to be firing at the pin. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hit, you know, there's a gust of wind behind us. I'm like, I'm going to take the club that takes the water out of play. And if I go long into the bunkers, I'll live with it. So I kept making par after par after par after a couple of guys made birdie. And then I made it to the last three. There was three of us left for two spots. And the first kid hits the rocks on the water. I'm like, oh, he's going to dunk it. Hits the rocks, goes straight up in the air onto the green. And I hit mine long into the bunker and he beat me and he ended up winning the whole thing. The whole tournament? The whole tournament. This kid from St. John's. Wow. He beat the best player on Long Island who was, everyone thought was going to dominate in that tournament, but match play, anything could happen. But to your point, that day was an interesting change of events for me because like, let's say I made par on that hole. I could have continued my run and got into the match play. No problem. But I had that moment where that lie really got in my head and shook my confidence on that shot. But then I got into a situation later in the round in the playoff where I'm very comfortable with my irons. I'm very comfortable with my targets. I just knew I didn't want to shoot myself in the foot and, and take the water out of play and then just kind of par it to death. And it almost worked, but I got unlucky. The kid hit the rocks. You know, he dunked that in the water. I'm in. The first slide in my seminar is winning requires luck. Stop trying to make birdies. Stop trying to make putts. Like winning requires luck. That yeah. guy wound up not only just winning that playoff, winning the whole tournament. He won the whole he tournament. Shouldn't even, he shouldn't even be in the tournament. Exactly. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And he was the second one who hit the rocks and made, and got on the green. It happened on the first, you know, the first kid knocked hit on the rock, called it. He says, watch me hit on the rocks somehow. Hits on the rock, ricochets 20 yards left, and he drains a 40-footer for birdie. And everyone watching just like fell over laughing like we were dying. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, that was a pressure situation and I enjoyed it. I was like, you know what? If I make it great, if I don't, whatever. I can play against a bunch of college kids. It's hilarious. Well, that was the kind of thing that when I played in that golf tournament two weeks ago, I mean, it's an NTPGA winter series event. I get it. It's not Phoenix, but it's a professional golf tournament. These guys play a lot of golf and it was just funny. Like some of the comments I got back on Twitter where they're like pretty bad finish. I'm like, well, first of all, again, like defensively, it's my first rounds of golf in basically a year and a half after having two elbow surgeries, but also I'm a 48 year old amateur. These are 24 year old playing professionals. They're good at golf i don't care if they're not on tour they're really good it's it's just again it's it's just hard to realize how many great players there are in the world now i mean there's a lot of kids that can play we're gonna take a quick break there and we will be right back what's up sweet spot listeners i am super excited to introduce a new brand we're working with gooder sunglasses I pretty much do not go outside without sunglasses on, and I definitely wear them all the time on the golf course, so it's a really important product for me. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that are lightweight, comfortable, and do not move while you swing. 
When I first got them, I was shocked at the quality. There's no way you would know they were $25 if someone just put them in your hands. Their golf sunglasses have HD contrast, so you'll see clearly when you're on the golf course, and you don't have to worry about losing them because they don't have a hefty price tag. You may have seen Sergio Garcia wearing them recently playing on the PGA Tour. They have a wide variety of designs and colors that should suit just about any style you're looking for, whether it's for golf or elsewhere in your life. All Gooder sunglasses are 100% UV protective and have polarized lenses. You'll also get a one-year warranty and a 30-day window to return them for free if you don't like them. If you want to try out a pair or two, we've arranged an exclusive discount for Sweet Spot listeners. Go to Gooder, G-O-O-D-R dot com forward slash Sweet Spot and use promo code Sweet Spot at checkout and you will receive 15% off your entire order. That's www.goodr.com forward slash sweet spot. And make sure to use promo code sweet spot at checkout for your 15% discount. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the next thing I wanted to talk about is like, especially for the people who are on the fence, maybe do I want to play tournaments is, you know, what are the pros and cons of pursuing this is something like, do you want to add this to your golf life? Because like, I think there's so many different 
ways to enjoy golf. Like you can be someone who just goes out there and doesn't even keep score and walks the course and and enjoy it. That's fine. Like that's okay. That is a way to play this game. Or you could go the psychopath competitive route and see if you could beat a bunch of college kids or whatever. Like you, you can go that route too. But I think there's, maybe we can talk about like some of the pros and cons when you step into the arena. Like there are some very bad things. Let's start with the cons because I've had some really horrible moments that like shook me to my core. <laughs> like what? Oh, I just I, I've I've had you know when I, mean, I first, I've been in tears a million times on the golf course, but I've, I've never would have been like. Well, I mean, in the sense of like my golf core, not my life core. But when I perhaps first started doing it, you can get trapped into like I forget who said this on Twitter. It might have been Oberhauser. When you let your score dictate like your almost self-worth for the day, like you can get into this trap when you play in tournaments where you're like, okay, the number is everything. Did I make it or did I not make it? And like, what was the number? And then that is like, you know, you have days where like you play well and then you get too high on yourself and then you go out another day and you just make a fool out of yourself. Like I've done some really foolish, embarrassing things during tournaments that for sure is a con. I didn't even really think about that. Yeah, that's what I meant. Just like there's these moments where you just like step off the course and you're like, oh, that was horrible. Like, I don't know if I want to do that again. Like, why would I subject myself to that? And for some people, I would say don't. Like the smarter decision might not be to subject yourself to that. Well, there's no doubt about that. But I'm thinking more of like, well, you should be prepared for that. And and again, this is where it's easy for me to say this since I haven't played a whole lot of tournaments in the last five or six years. It's easy to say this and say what you're saying, like you can't let that impact your self-worth, but it is definitely too many people get way too attached to their scores and everything as being their self-worth. Well, I mean, my stepmom growing up, if I would come home and I was all pissed off, she, we didn't get along real well, but she's like, how'd you play today? And I'm like, well, (laughs) let me, let me tell you, but that, that's really golf in general. Like whenever you play golf, the question after, oh, you play golf today. How'd you play? What'd you shoot? That's always the question. It's not, did you have fun? So that's just part of the game in general. Maybe those GCA people that I argue with haven't figured out that don't even keep score. I don't know. Obviously what what Adam and I are trying to do on the show is help people shoot. I'm just trying to stir your pot. (laughs) No, no, no. I think all, all three of us are trying to lower people's scores, but like, I have nothing against people who like, I've told some people, if you only play 10 times a year. If it were me, like I wouldn't even bother like keeping score much. I would just try and have fun. Like that's not enough to, you know, have reasonable expectations of becoming a much better golfer. Like you need to have enough time on the course to expect, you know, better things to happen. But certainly when you take it to the next level in tournaments, like all of that gets heightened, that expectation, the number, talking to people who knew you were playing, whether it's at your golf club or your buddies online, whatever it is, it's like now you're like adding this other level of like, oh, well, you know, this is a bit more serious than me just going out on a Thursday afternoon. Why do we care so much? <laughs> well, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, but that's probably just ties when we could get really philosophical. No, yeah, I want to. I want to. Why do we care so much? What's, what's the reason why humans care about the outcome so much? Why, why do we compare for the, why do we care about the comparison? So you're going the evolution route. That's probably where I would go as well. I mean, evolution, it's why we've grown to dominate this planet. It's why certain countries dominate certain things. Like it's interesting because there are people that I grew up playing junior golf with and college golf with who never had any aspirations of playing professional golf whatsoever. 
I would say that I wasn't, obviously I didn't play in any AGGAs. I wasn't very heralded as I didn't play much in college. I was busy studying and having fun. I just always felt like I was better. There was no question in my mind until I broke my leg that I was going to turn pro and play professional golf. And that was based on absolutely nothing in reality in my results. And so I do think that I just, for whatever reason, it's probably why I've struggle with depression and, and other things also. Like it's just, I'm never satisfied with anything. And so you just constantly keep going and going and going and trying, which <laughs> is not a trap though. Is not the American trap. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is good or bad or healthy or not, but again, I personally, if I'm just kind of, I mean, I've done fairly well in life. I don't have to do anything. I could just sit around and drink and play poker and play wolf all day. I just know that I would look back whenever I'm on my deathbed and be like, well, that was kind of a waste. Why didn't you try to do more? And so it is just hard to compartmentalize everything. But again, I'm not a unicorn. So I know that golf attracts a whole bunch of type A people. So it kind of attracts the kind of person who's going to be led down the path of, of mastery and, and like a lifelong learner. I, I do think that this game whatever segment of the population that lifelong learner never satisfied, you know, what is that? Two to 5% of the population maybe, but I bet it makes up half of golfers. It is definitely concentrated in us. I mean, we're all kind of crazy. Well, it's funny. Like when people give Bryson a hard time, like he just seems kind of like a jerk or selfish or whatever. Like they all are like, and I say that I work with 50 guys on tour. Like, I'm not saying they're jerks. We're all kind of the same. Like you just want to do more. And I've got, like I say, where I was started this rant was I've got some buddies I played junior golf with that were really good. And I'm like, you never wanted to try. And they're like, no, I just kind of got my job and I just kind of sell whatever widget I sell and I'm good. I was just like, that makes no sense to me. I've learned to be that, Scott. I had to learn to be that because intuitive or instinctively, I want to set goals. I want to move forwards. I want to get better in my life. But I actually learned to back up off that and say, well, what is this? Why, why am I driven to prove myself to others? For me, it goes back to that evolutionary psychology principle of, well, I'm probably trying to, you know, the whole thing with ego is you're trying to prove yourself to others, to put yourself on a hierarchical status that is better than others, probably for increased sexual selection odds. And then I just see it as, well, this is just ridiculous. This is just a misfiring of my evolutionary past. Therefore, well, <laughs> what's the point in this? Why didn't I just enjoy it instead? And it actually helped me a lot. I'm much more satisfied with life now. I'm one of those guys who can be like, eh, you know what? I've done all right. I've done what I feel I need to in life relatively. I still have this urge to do more and more, but I actually, it's not suppressing it. It's just looking at it from, you know, observing the observer and saying, well, is that really what I want or is that just a misfiring in my genetic code that is is causing me to do that? Because I didn't find that produced happiness for me either. I didn't find that achieving more and more, you know, you always think that next achievement is going to make you happy and it doesn't. You know, I always thought that getting from 20 handicapped down to single figures would make me happy. No, it didn't. Oh, maybe getting from single figures to the lowest handicap at the facility would make me happier. No, it didn't. Maybe getting to scratch it would make me happier. It didn't. Each achievement 
doesn't necessarily make you happy. And I think you have to step back and observe the observer there sometimes. And I think people don't. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the pros and cons of it, because you can get caught up in the, we've talked about, I guess the word is the hedonic hedonic treadmill, or you just keep getting more and more and more. Achievement stuff. treadmill, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and I'm certainly one of those people. Like I've, you know, as a child, I love to keep track of things with numbers and like always test myself and, and you know, trying to, but I've procreated now. So from an evolutionary standpoint, then <laughs> You've passed I guess, I, I, yeah, so I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Maybe there is something to that because I didn't start playing my best golf and having my most fun playing golf until I became a father because things were in perspective for me. Like I just knew that whatever happened on the course when I got off of it, it's like, well, who really cares what happened? Like I cared in the moment, but I've got to put that behind me quickly and just view it for what it was, which was a great experience. So like I view the cons of tournament golf, maybe to get back to something tangible here, is that like, yeah, you can create some you know, maybe we're not always in control of it, but you can create some horrible moments for yourself if, if your expectations are out of line, like where it really brings you down, and especially pro golfers too. Like, you know, I have a lot of respect for anyone who tries to play professionally. Do I think it's the healthiest of lifestyles? Like probably not just because week to week and the travel and the numbers and the money, like it's brutal. And there's so few who make it now, but in terms of like the pros of what I, what I get out of the tournaments now, it's like, you know, I think a lot of psychologists have talked about this is is that, you know, people gain more happiness out of life through experiences versus things. And for me, playing in these tournaments have become wonderful experiences. I get to play awesome golf courses that maybe I wouldn't have access to normally. I have all these great memories. Like there's a lot of camaraderie. Like I made a lot of friends playing in the tournaments. Like we kind of hang out afterwards and have a beer and talk about the round. So like I'm building up this library of memories in my head, like, hey, you remember when you were at the Long Island Open, you know, you played two great rounds, you did, you missed the cut by two, but you were in the moment, you were fighting. And I look back on those moments and I'm like, I remember those great shots I was hitting down the stretch. And technically it was a quote unquote failure because I missed the cut, but I played well under the pressure and that was satisfying for me because I'm just not as good as the other players there. Like they're better than me at this moment and I can accept that. But I was close to making the cut and that was really fun for me. And I, I look back on those things as great experiences. Well, I totally agree with everything like you and Adam are saying there. And I, and I say this all the time, like I am not attached to results anymore. Like sure, I had a great excuse last week when I shot 78, 73 in a golf tournament. Like, yeah, I haven't played much, but I really didn't care. And I, I say it all the time. Like, I don't know if that's just because I'm older. I'm not worried about money. I've got less testosterone. I've got kids. I really don't know what that is. I've meditated myself into oblivion. <laughs> I really don't know what it is, but I definitely am not as attached to results. Now, one thing I will say, and it definitely is a concern of mine, I hate fishing. I love catching fish. <laughs> you just put one on the line and I'll reel that thing in. I love the idea of playing on the Champions Tour. Now, do I love the idea of going to a Champions Tour Monday qualifier? Or traveling for three straight weeks away from my kids who will at that time be in fifth, sixth, seventh grade and like ninth, tenth and eleventh grade? Like, well, that seems kind of dumb. But I just I'm in this position where I'm like, I feel like if I don't try that, I would be like, you've got to be kidding me. How did you never try that? But 
Going back to why I entered Q school in 2008, again, I'm a 35-year-old amateur with a full-time job. I had just gotten married. We got pregnant actually probably two weeks after final stage of Q school where I had I entered as an amateur. And so I've turned pro. And the first place I go to was Phoenix, actually, for the Monday qualifier. I'm sitting in P.F. Chang's in Scottsdale by myself as a 35-year-old with a pregnant wife at home. And I'm like, what in the hell am I doing here? Like, What did you order? Yeah. Did you get get the drunken noodles? I would have to imagine I uh, I got Chang spicy chicken, although the bandan noodles are about as good as it gets. (laughs) Although once I realized they literally put a stick of butter in each serving of those, it uh, (laughs) lost its appeal. But I really like I was just sitting there and and I definitely am trying to look forward and be like, is this actually what you want to do? I mean, I would love to play on the Champions Tour. I'm not sure that I actually want to go through the grind of trying to get access to it. You know, that's just being very realistic and like frank. But again, just for me personally, just sitting around here and doing nothing, like it's definitely what I've realized. I've worked myself into just being a customer service rep over the last two years during the pandemic. And it's that Steve Jobs line of if you wake up too many days in a row and don't like what you're going to be doing, then you need to do something else. And it honestly took me like a year and a half to realize I'm really not enjoying this anymore. The first three or four years of decade, I was loving it. I was doing more seminars. I was just out spreading the message and talking about decade. And then over the last two years, as our customer base has grown, and fortunately for me, my email and phone number are everywhere on the internet, I just can't keep up. So it's like, it doesn't matter where I stop or start my day, I can't keep up. And it's and I'm just not happy with it. And that's where I'm like, dude, I got to get back to playing more golf, whether that's competitively or not. I've just got to get back out doing more. But again, to try to button this up for something tangible besides this being a Brene Brown podcast, I do think that just being unemotionally attached to results, you just have to not care. And again, that's not going to happen via magic. That's only going to happen with concentrated effort, meditation practice, whatever it is you want to call it, gratitude journaling. I mean, that's one thing. Zalatoris and I talked about last year some, it was like, how are you handling all this right now, man? I mean, this kid two years ago right now didn't have status on the corn Ferry tour. And then he almost wins the masters and he's made millions and millions of dollars. Like, how are you handling this? And he just said, you know, sometimes if I'm getting kind of down, if I don't play well, or if something goes wrong or I lose in a playoff, like just gratitude journaling, everything that I'm happy for. And it is, it is kind of a cheesy Tony Robbins type thing that I love, but just like sitting down and writing, literally just writing all the stuff you should be thankful for. That's, actually really helpful and you will get up from that session feeling better yeah i would definitely second that i mean that's that's my tactic whenever things get down in life or golf that i I just go through all right what's good in life and there's plenty of things if you look for it i just want to talk a little about the the paradox maybe it's just me saying a statement here but there is this kind of paradox that i used to have as a junior where i would prepare so much for something you know even before an event i used to book our junior tournaments i would book mine in the afternoon so i could prepare in the morning i used to exhaust myself stupidly but i'd go down and i'd be practicing six hours of short game before i go out and play and it's that paradox of you prepare so much for something and yet the optimal state is to go out and actually not care. <laughs> and yet we've done all that work in. I mean, it, it's almost exactly the same as cramming for a test. Like I, again, it's so funny. Like I used to always, when I'd be getting on a plane to go to a professional event, I'd be like, 
I hope that my game shows up, you know, like as though the plane or the travel or a different time zone is going to make you lose your game. But like the night before Q school started was, is always just the worst. You're just, even if you're striping it, you're just out there on the range. Like, I just want to keep striping it. I want to keep grooving this. And if you're not, you just, I want to find it. And it's like, dude, in both situations, your rest is more important. And I honestly, that's one thing that I would say like Tiger and those guys, when they used to talk about trying to peak for tournaments, I thought that meant they were just grinding their face off the 10, 14 days leading into the tournament. And actually it's the opposite of that. It's like if the tournament starts on Thursday, the prior week, you're putting in a ton of work until about Friday. And then you start tapering it back and just playing your practice rounds and playing nine holes and getting your rest and getting that part of it ready. Like, the peaking part isn't done by practicing for five hours the day before a tournament. Like, I mean, again, you just have to get your mind right and be fresh. And again, that's the one thing that I'll say as a guy who I feel like I'm a pretty good caddy when I've helped players, they've always played better than they are. And I think that one of those things is, is just taking that mental stress off and be like, you don't have to think about anything. I will tell you exactly what to do and you can trust it's going to be the right thing. And it just frees them up mentally to where they're just not as exhausted by the end of the round. And But you've got to start that round not exhausted also. Yeah, I think that was not that I'm some tournament guru, but noticing better results over the year and what happened prior to that. My assumption was kind of like Adam's. I was like, oh, thinking back to like my academic days where I studied really hard for a test. And then the result was more direct. I prepared I did everything I was supposed to do. I knew the material and I aced the thing. Whereas with golf, it doesn't work like that, especially if you're leading up to a big event, whether this is your club championship, a USGA qualifier, whatever it is. Like I've found quite the opposite is that the more I grinded and tried to produce a result, the more I stepped up to the first tee, like in a discombobulated like cloudy state. Cause I'm like, oh, remember to do this and this, remember this you were working on, do that. Versus now it's like, I show up, I do my preparation beforehand in terms of like, you know, thinking of my tee shots and stuff like that. But I'm just, you know, I tee up saying like, listen, I don't know what's going to happen today because I don't know what version of me is going to show up. If you look at my, the bell curve of, of my, my score distribution, I hope it's the good one. I, I hope it's not the bad one, but it's more like I just show up like I'm here to have fun today. Like I'm looking forward to doing this little battle with myself because that's really what I see it is. It's like this fun little battle. I'll get to play this cool course and we'll see what happens. And I've noticed when I've let go more beforehand, better results have come. That doesn't mean it works every time, but like certainly like the harder I squeezed, the worse I played. I've got a million anecdotal stories, but at some point, if you have a million of them, it stops being anecdotal. It starts being, well, hey, that worked again. I was the year that I had crappy conditional status on the Corn Ferry Tour. I was like 10th alternate for the BMW. And so I went down to San Antonio for the Monday qualifier and I wound up getting in the BMW. And the way that it works, like I had, it was before the first reshuffle, like I had to go there. So I, I jumped out of there, got on a plane to wherever it is in North or South Carolina. I don't even remember. It's a three course pro-am where you play three rounds and then they cut. And I played a practice round and I'm just exhausted from San Antonio driving home, flying there, practice round Tuesday, practice round Wednesday. And I was going to drive like the other course was like 45 minutes away. And I was going to drive there just to look at the course. 
And I was like, man, I'm just exhausted. Like I don't have it in me. And I literally just went back to my hotel room and I just sat down and this was before I did any meditation or any sort of work like that. And I just sat there because I was hitting it awful. I was playing awful. I was tired. Those are when the best rounds come. Isn't it funny? (laughs) I mean, everything about it was awful. I mean, like, just like, what am I even doing here? And I sat there that night. I was like, what can I do that would be productive? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch my, like I used to skateboard a ton when I was a kid and still to this day, even I've never snowboarded in my life, but I still can't even watch the snowboarding in like the Olympics without like pumping my legs at the exact points that you would be doing it like on a half pipe on a skateboard. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch my swing on a loop from a tee shot that I know I striped. And I seriously just sat there and watched it on like a 20 second loop, my whole pre-shot routine, walking into it, addressing it, hitting it, the whole deal. And I just sat there and watched it literally for like an hour. And I was just feeling it and just feeling it and just feeling it. And I went out and I shot 68, 66 and was in like fourth place through two rounds. And the 66 was on the course that I played completely blind, which honestly, I'd never really thought about this looking back at it. I don't remember, but I bet I was just aiming more towards the middle of the greens because I was like, I don't know what's out here. I bet I played a pretty good decade round of golf, just trying not to get my way too much. And I was just laughing because I'm like, in like fourth place. And if you'd looked at me on Wednesday night, I would have told you, what am I even doing here? Why am I even trying to play professional golf? You're an idiot. Just go home. You got a kid on the way. Just run your electricity company and chill out. And then I went out and played two of my best rounds back to back. Like it's just, it's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. On on the topic of what you do before round, you know, listening to lots of good players, they a consistent theme is that they try to keep the, even their pre-round and pre-day routines very, very consistent. I think one of the mistakes that lots of amateurs might make is, you know, maybe they turn up to a, a, a normal round of golf and they just rock up at X time, hit a few balls, and then they go out. And yet they have this big tournament and now it's, right, I need a brand new glove on and I need my pants freshly ironed and you're just doing all these things that you normally wouldn't do and that sends a signal to the brain you know you turn up an hour extra early to do a a warm-up and and stretch and everything and, and your brain is just having this signal this is different this is important and then that triggers I've got to be more aware because this is a going back to psychological uh, evolutionary psychology you know, this is a survival mechanism that when we see that things are different, our brain starts seeking danger. And that can start to link to when you're on the golf course. When we have more adrenaline, our brains seek danger more and is more likely to go to don't do this and don't do that. And so, it, you know, one of my my mates who used to play a lot of tournament golf, pro tournament golf, he he said that he just... You know, he does the same thing that he does every night. He has a beer, but just before he goes to bed, wakes up at the same time and goes onto the course exactly the same time. So trying to keep everything as consistent as possible. Well, that's the one thing like with Zalatoris, I've worked with him obviously very closely for a good six or so years. And then as he's turned professional, like I've got him with Dr. Lard and he's obviously with Josh Gregory and Troy Denton. Like he's got an amazing team around him. Sure. We talk still all the time. I send him the little packets that I make every week, but at this point he pretty much knows everything 
I know. Like, I got nothing else to tell him. My job is to get him to spend his money as stupidly as possible from this point forward. But I did finally last year at some point, I was like, you know, we haven't really talked about meditation and all this stuff. Like, I'm kind of the guy that got him into it. It's definitely what we were doing back in 2014 during the Texas Salmon U.S. Junior. But I really haven't asked him, like, what your process is in a long time. And I finally was like, I'm just curious, man, what are you doing now? Are you still just sitting down for 10 or 20 minutes every day? He's like, no, I don't really do that anymore. But what I've got is this three hour loop of this song called Fading Fog on Headspace, where it's just like this Hans Zimmery type long, low melodic beat. And he's like, I've got a three hour loop of that that I listen to as I'm getting ready each day to go play. And I was like, Oh my God, you're not doing it for 10 minutes. You're doing it for three hours. Like, <laughs> Talking about doing the same thing every single day. He's like, yeah, I don't know. He's like, I've been doing it for like a year and a half at least now. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's incredible. Like that's how the final round of the masters is the same thing as whatever the first round of a corn fairy event in Salt Lake City is. I'm just doing the same thing. At the end of the day, it is the same game. It is just golf. Yeah, it's a really hard course, but (laughs) also there's a lot of funnels set up that if you use them right and you hit it well, like... You can really work your way. If you know how to, you can work your way around that golf course pretty efficiently. And it's just funny. Like, that's how you do it. You do the same thing every single day. I think it's either Tim Ferriss or Josh Waitzkin. I can't remember whose quote it is. But, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And so the only way you're going to be consistent in the heat, it's a Josh Waitzkin thing for sure. The only way you're going to be consistent in the heat of the moment is by being consistent every day of your life. And again, this is where a lot of times what I talk about, like, I don't think it sounds like much fun. So you really want to do the same thing every day. Like, well, this is a podcast about tournament golf. If you want to play your best tournament golf, yeah, you need to do the same thing you do every day. And and this is actually like the opposite anecdote of that. When I entered Q school, I think it was like 2011 or 12, there was a wreck on the toll with the Dallas North Tollway. I was having to drive north to go from my house to McKinney to Stonebridge Ranch. And there was a wreck where somebody died. Rest in peace. Sorry about that. But it had totally shut the tollway down and every other like major road going north where I was like, oh my God, is the final round. And I was like on the number and I was like, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to make my, there was a point where I was like, I'm not going to make my tea time. You've got to be kidding me. And I pulled into the, and, and as I was going, I finally got through all the traffic and I'm like, okay, I'm going to make it but I'm going to get there about 12 minutes before my tee time. What's the best use of my 12 minutes run over to the range and hit 16 balls as fast as I can, or go into the gym and do a more normal warm up Like I do get the body moving, get blood flowing, get loose that way and just take some speed sticks, weighted club type swings in there. And then just have my first tee shot be my first shot be on the first tee. And I was like, you know, I actually do that relatively often for my Friday Wolf game. I get stuck in the office and the way my old club at Bentry, you had to walk through the gym. I would sit there and I would do that eight or so minute warm up. If I was running quick, like normally it's about 15 minutes. I could shorten it down to about eight minutes. And yeah, because the way our range is and it's not a PGA tour event where you, you better be here on the exact minute. You know, we could squeeze a minute or two late, but I would literally run over, hit three drivers. I would always hit them well. And then go to the first team. I was like, screw it. I'm going to do that. And I went out and I shot 67 or 68 and skated in like it was nothing. But that was me just saying, this is what you do every other Friday. And Q school ends on Fridays. Like, it's the same thing. Don't freak yourself out. You can do this. And again, like finding little tricks to tell yourself 
also is a really helpful <laughs> tool. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Well, I think one of the important things for people who are trying to get into tournaments more is just understand that there's this trial and error to see what's comfortable for you. Like I've kind of settled, like when I first started playing tournaments, I would show up like so far before the tea time. Like it was just like, and then it became like too much time. I would hit balls, you know, putt, do all these things. And then I'd have like a half hour to just sit there and ruminate <laughs> and be like, what's going to happen today. Whereas now, like, I think, you know, I've settled on like 45 minutes, something like that. That's enough time to get my body ready, hit some balls, get the speeds of the green and then just go. And that, because I've done it so many times now, you know, whether I showed up to the Met-Am this summer, which was the biggest tournament I ever played in, or just some random qualifier, it almost feels pretty much the same. But that took, you know, how many times of coming up too early, coming up too late, and then going through all these weird things. And then saying like, okay, that feels right for me. That feels comfortable. I'm going to try and do that at the same time for my tournament days. And when I play recreationally with my friends, like, you know, like you said, sometimes like I get caught up with like work stuff and like I don't have control over it. And then I'll just like show up to the course and just try and get my body ready. So I probably have two different like warm ups, like one for like quick recreational round and others like, okay, this is tournament day. Like I'm going to get myself comfortable and my body ready and my mind right and ready to go. A similar situation to that was the the U.S. Amateur at Oakland Hills. I think that was 2016 in Detroit. We had Will Zalatoris had the, the afternoon tea time for the first round of stroke play. And I just remember, like, I don't remember why we had two cars or why I wasn't out there with them already. I, I don't remember what the exact story was. But I remember he got to the course like two hours because he had, I mean, we literally had like the last tea time. And he got out there like two, two and a half hours before his tea time. And I remember when I showed up being like, Oh no, like you're freaking out. Like what, <laughs> what's going like, this is not, we don't need to be here that early. Like what's going. And I didn't say anything, but I can't remember if it was Cameron McCormick or I feel like he was working with Cameron still at the time. And I just remember texting whoever it was like, Oh no, man, this guy's nervous and freaking out. And then we got up on the first tee and he just got a terrible break and like hit it like into the, the roots of a tree and made double and again, like I'm so negative. I was like, well, we're going to shoot like 86 here. <laughs> but we talked about it afterwards. I was, I mean, I don't remember what he, he wound up making match play. I can't remember what he shot or where he finished, but he did make match play. But we talked about it afterwards. I was like, dude, whatever that was this morning, don't do that again. Like I literally knew you were not going to do well today because you were just out here so early and just Again, it's hard because you're just sitting around in a hotel. Like you don't know what to do sometimes at golf tournaments like that or just around your house. And you're like, let's just go out there and start getting ready. And it's like, well, that's not good either. I mean, not hitting any balls isn't just do whatever it is. You find got to find your routine and do whatever that is constantly. Yep. Speaking more of the year, how you'd structure the year or even the week, how do you practice to train for a tournament so say you had a tournament in two weeks time is there anything different you'd be doing in your simulator at home or would you be getting that more out on the course would you be doing more block practice would you be doing different types of practice (laughs) you had to you had to say it didn't you well i I wasn't actually trying to go there (laughs) you know it's interesting because again, like what is the Jedi becomes the master or whatever. I do look at Zalatoris now as 
the Jedi Knight who's surpassed my golf IQ, quite obviously, not just in physical skills, but even what he understands about the game. And going back to it was literally, it was, it was we recorded a podcast in his apartment the day that Kobe died. So it was like January 26th of 2020. And it was a couple weeks before the pandemic started and everything locked down. And the thing that was, again, is looking back at it, it was a godsend for him. The pandemic forced them. The range was closed at Merido. You couldn't practice. You just had to go play. And all he did for like the two months of the lockdown was just play golf. He didn't really practice at all. And he was like, that was for sure the best. That's why I just joined Merido. Cause I'm like this golf course, it's really, really hard. It's an amazing place. And you're just going to get your teeth kicked in every single day. And you're going to figure out how to get your ball around the course and how to not pout and get through it. And that's definitely my goal over the next two years leading into turning 50 is to stop practicing so much and start playing a lot more. And this is coming as a guy who just said yesterday, I went out for a three hour practice session and had the best day I've had in years. I'm definitely hoping to force myself. And again, it is, it does feel a little bit strange as a 48 year old dude who to just wake up on a Tuesday morning and be like, yeah, well, you're not a professional golfer, but what you're trying to do, you're supposed to just go play golf today. Like that feels really strange, but that's definitely what I'm going to try to do. So I don't know if that's my answer for two weeks leading into a tournament, but it is for two years leading into a tournament. I'm going to try to play a lot more golf. So playing more AKA random practice then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I don't disagree with that. I mean, honestly, I don't side hill lies, but again, that's my thing. When people talk about random practice on a driving range, that's still flat lies. I need to get on more uneven lies. And so, yes, I definitely agree with you. Like there, you do need to randomize all of that stuff. I still don't think that that argument holds when we go to a driving range where everything's flat, but I also think it's kind of somewhat semantics. This, that, that whole block versus random thing has just gotten so blown out of proportion looking back at it. I, I view, I tweeted this out the other day is like, and again, why I always ask people like how many rounds a year can you play, whether you're just trying to become a better golfer or even a tournament player is that playing golf is practice. It is because you're gaining experience every time and you're dealing with these situations hopefully taking notes, adjusting what made me uncomfortable, what went well. But in the context of tournament play, there's no chance I could be getting better at tournaments. Not, I haven't gotten better every year. I get better, setback, better, setback, you know, that type of thing. But I was also playing a lot in between those rounds. So that'd be another thing I'd say to people who are considering tournament golf or who are just starting is like, you know, if you were going to play five or six events a year, And then on top of that, you weren't playing that much outside of those events. I would just say like, yeah, just show up and have fun. Like, you know, and just see what happens. Don't really have any expectations. But if you're trying to get better at this thing, you want to be a really solid tournament player. Like you better be playing a decent amount in between those competitive rounds because I think that's where most of the really good work happens. In addition to the practice range and working on your short game and, and other stuff in a practice environment. But there's just too many things that happen on the golf course, the wind, the elevation change, the side hill lies, the deep lies, the intermediate lies, just too many things that are good learning experiences and keep you fresh. At least that's for me. Like I'm just not good enough not to play enough to keep my skill level that high. One thing that sounds silly, but like, it's funny just again, not to just constantly say I don't play much golf, But one thing, being in my simulator here, I used to be a guy that really just kind of saw shape and then where my ending point was. 
But with the way that I practice in my simulator, I'm trying to hit everything down the center line and then fade it off of it. And so I really am changing how I see golf shots and I'm really treating my body lines as a rifle scope now to where like I'm pointing those exactly where I want the ball to start. I just, you know, I've got a pretty traditional swing where my path and face like it's if you stood behind me, you'd be like, this guy's hitting a 10 yard cut, I guess is the point. But so I really am trying to change how I see and it is just different to not just be raking a ball over and hitting it. And you've got to get yourself oriented from behind the ball into the target. You've got to make sure you're lined up however it is you line up. And there are just certain things you're only going to really get good at. Even if, you know, I talk about like in a utopian world, you know, you would get behind every single shot on the driving range. Well, nobody's going to do that. But you should get behind every single driver because if you drive it well, the game's just not very hard. And so trying to get behind, but even still getting behind, like yesterday when I was practicing, I hit balls all over the range that I think they would have been functional golf shots. You know, again, it's just hard to see like a 70 yard wide shot pattern on a driving range and know would that shot have worked on a golf course. And so you've just got to get out on the golf course and be like, yeah, that was a massive flare, but it wasn't too much. That swing, even though it wasn't great, it also wasn't the end of the world. And again, the double-edged sword of that is, is if you are hitting them off the world, off the planet quite often, it's going to be hard to find that confidence, but it's also a place where you'll learn what you need to work on. Well, quick segue. And like, I always credit you for this, Scott, is that, you know, I played with a lot of pretty good tournament players at this point. I haven't seen one of them who wasn't comfortable with their driver or didn't use it a lot. And that's what you told me years ago, because I was avoiding it at all costs is that if you are going to play in tournaments like yeah you want to have a good short game and putt well but you don't have a realistic opportunity of of doing well and you know making some cuts and getting into bigger events if you're not going to embrace the driver it's just too hard these days like I play against a lot of college kids and these are not top tier college talent but you know there's some D1 mid-level players I'm playing against and they hit it pretty damn far and I'm luckily keeping up with them somewhat at maybe my 280, 285, 290 shots on firm fairways these days. That keeps me close to them. But like, yeah, I don't have any chance of competing with them unless I'm hitting my driver most of the time. So that's another thing to throw in your your thought basket. (laughs) The attribution of this quote I've always heard is Hogan. I have no idea if it's true or not. But it's basically if you can't putt, you can't score, but if you can't drive it, you can't play. And I, I do fully subscribe to that. I do think that my I drive it really well, and I do think that that hides a lot of the other weaknesses in my game or historically has because typically I hit it pretty damn far and pretty straight, pretty consistent. But what you're talking about there, like not hitting driver enough, the analogy that I've been giving to people is – you know, I could get my eight-year-old daughter to day two of the main event of the World Series of Poker. Literally the best 10,000 poker players on the planet. I could get my daughter to the top 35, 40% of them guaranteed by just sitting her down on day one and saying, hey, everyone, she's only playing aces and kings and she's pushing all in when she gets them. She would only get knocked out if she just happened to run kings into aces, which is obviously extremely rare. And she would win enough hands that she would probably make it into day two. And then she would get knocked out by about lunch on day two because eventually people start getting short stacked. They're going to call. The point of the story is by not playing your eight, nine suiteds in the right positions and your ace kings and your other hands, you're just folding away too much equity. You're folding away too much pot equity. And yeah, you're not going to get yourself in much trouble, but you don't have any real chance of shooting your best scores, of having your best poker tournament finish. And so you do. You've just got to get comfortable with driving. It sucks because I've got a buddy who's 
He's got a son that plays college golf and he's just like, what do you do if their shot pattern is 120 yards wide with driver? I'm like, well, the only way it's going to get that big is if you're double crossing him. So let's just start with hitting a huge cut. I don't care if it's a huge draw, just hit a huge one and then just start doing it less and less and less until they finally double cross one. And then that's the point that you stop. You've just got to own a shape because if you do, it's kind of hard for your shot pattern to be that big. Now, again, I do think that this is more of like a driver yip situation, which would be like, again, I've never had a driver yip, so I don't know exactly what that feels like. I have to assume it's terrifying, but you just got to hit the driver as much as you physically can. And it, it honestly, it should feel ridiculous how often you're hitting it to some degree. Well, the problem I think it creates, and this is coming from the perspective from someone who really struggled with it is that, if you step on the course terrified of tee shots, it's just that makes the game like in the context of competitive play, it's not going to go well. And I know what this feels like when you're stepping up to every tee, just like it's a problem that needs to be solved. So I would say, you know, again, for someone who is prioritizing tournament play, like, yeah, putting, yes, the days you get hot with the putter. Those are great days, but those don't show up every day, as we know, because putting is so difficult. There's imperfections on the greens. Yeah, there, there's but you know what you of- can do well most days? Lag putt well. Yeah, absolutely. You get out of the result-oriented yeah. thinking, and you just lag putt well. That's what Zalatoris does so well. He was 18th in strokes gained, or excuse me, in, in approach putt performance last year, which is the average length of your second putt. That guy lag putts his face off. And as a result, he's, you know, an average putter on tour, which is a really good putter. And again, it's just crazy because that guy, you know, the point, like my two year experiment to go try the champions tour, my main objectives are going to be, be the best lag putter I can be hammer the driver as far as I possibly can and a consistent meditation process every single day so I can handle adversity and have my mental scorecard be as high as physically possible. If I can do those three things, I'm going to be pretty good. I mean, there's a lot more to the game, but if you can do those three things, well, you're going to be all right. Now, I would say getting into the mindfulness and meditation part of it and what you're thinking about in between shots, which... You know, when you do play in tournaments, there's a lot. I mean, I'm the type of guy who likes to make friends with my playing partners. So if we don't know each other, we'll kind of get to know each other. A lot of people I I know now when we play in tournaments, so we'll just have a good time. So, you know, there's a lot of time to fill up between shots. But like there will be these moments where either things aren't going well or maybe things are going well and you've got your chance and your opportunity. And then it's like, oh, now what am I thinking about? And for me it's the breathing and almost like the neutral mindset of just maybe taking in the moment of, you know, sometimes if my playing partner's hitting his shot, I'm looking at the trees, I'm focusing on the wind hitting like a leaf and just focusing on that. If I'm nervous, I'm consciously trying to slow down how fast I'm walking because I know I speed up, especially with my pre-shot routine. Like I know and this gets back to the experience part where like tournaments where I've quote unquote blown it from nerves. I've gotten really fast with my routine, particularly on my irons where I'm just like stepping up to it and hitting it because I just want to get the moment over with. I want to know what happens versus like, okay, the timing and the cadence has to be very similar. And I think breathing, you know, I know you say you can call it meditation or not call it meditation, whatever the hell you want to call it. 
it's awareness. Awareness. Like, that, well, that's yeah. what mindfulness is, is you're, you're aware of the moment, you're letting things come in and you're not judging. Like sometimes crazy thoughts come into your head and you have to just be like, that's okay. That happened, whatever. I have to refocus myself, but the breathing has helped me a lot. I used to think that if you were doing it right, those thoughts wouldn't occur. And it really, it took a while for me to realize- It's impossible. Oh, gonna, yeah. yeah. You can't control yeah. your brain. You cannot control your brain. Sam Harris has got a great way that he talks about this. He's like, if your mind was someone else and they came through the front door of your house and just <laughs> followed you around saying the things, like your mind is the most rambling, incessant, awful person. <laughs> like you would literally kill this person in under an hour be like, leave me alone. <laughs> and so it's about recognizing that fact to circling back to what we were talking about earlier. Like that's why we are who we are. Like we're all just a little bit crazy. It's just to so what degree? I mean, again, if the thoughts you were thinking were being said out loud, you would look like the schizophrenic on the street corner. I mean, it's no different when you're saying you just have the understanding, I shouldn't say this shit out loud. Like that's the difference. But the thought process is all the same and you just have to recognize Okay, that's okay to think that. And like, there used to be this thing. I remember, I don't know if it was Rotel or who, but they're like, just take that thought and set it on a little petal of flowers and just let it float down the river. And like, as cheesy as that is, it's literally what you're trying to do is just be like, well, that was kind of a weird thought. Let's just set that down and just move on. Which again, most people sitting at home probably like, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. It takes a lot of work. But the spillover effects are not only when you play better golf, you'll probably be a better husband or wife or parent or child or teacher or employee or employer. Like there's there's a whole lot of reasons for this to do. And it makes sense. And again, it's it sounds impossible, but it literally is not impossible. I think that's where meditation is is a great thing in terms of it allows you to or trains you to focus or control where you place your attention. And you know that, that can be important in between shots, obviously, if you're thinking stupid things and starting to get too far ahead of yourself, but obviously during the shot as well. If you are standing over a shot, you need to know, what am I going to go into this shot and be thinking about? And so that could be a swing cue, maybe a technical thing, maybe something more simple, like, you know, an external focus, like how am I going to strike it? Like, you know, I tend to think about face strike with a driver, ground strike with an iron. That's going to be different for everybody. But, you know, when we're nervous, when we're in these tournament conditions, our brain is going to want to fire more random things. The more random voices are going to go into our heads. Our attention is going to be brought more towards danger because that's a evolutionary psychological trait that we have. And so, yeah, meditation, I think, is a really good thing to practice to allow you to recenter yourself, refocus on what is important for you. I think we should put a tie on that real quick just because we've talked about it so much. Sam Harris's Waking Up app. I'm not paid by him whatsoever. Sam Harris's Waking Up app to me is the best one, mainly because he explains to you in his introductory course how to take it from the meditation session of practice out into your actual life. And and again, as a 48-year-old who's been relatively successful in life and has a ton of demons in his head, I can tell you, and I've had some crazy stuff happening in my life over the last five or six years that you know many of y'all know about. It's the only thing that's kept me sane is the ability to recognize what is and isn't important, what is and isn't something. Well, it's the 
serenity prayer, you know, Lord, give me the things, the, the serenity to, to know. I'm not going to try to do that. <laughs> Being able to recognize, I was like, damn it, I don't know where this is. It is the serenity prayer, but it's basically, you need to know what you can control and influence. And if you can't control or influence, then you need to not waste any time whatsoever thinking about it. And that gets back to essentially, you know, a psychology principle is just if you're having anxiety, you're living in the future. If you're suffering from depression, you're probably living in the past. If you're in the present moment, like unless you're being actively tortured, it's probably not that bad. And it's just, again, when people say like, oh, just stay present, like, what the hell does that mean? Well, yeah. that means just, again, are you thinking about the birdie hole that's coming up? Are you ruminating on the dumb bogey you just made? Because that's the thing. When Tiger won the 2019 Masters, he double-crossed it straight right off of 10T on the final round behind that bush. He had to chip it out. He hit a good shot to about 18 feet long, and he left it you know, six inches in the short in the heart. And then he's just laughing and just totally moved on. And the reason that's important is the next tee box – on 11, he blew it a thousand yards right. And remember, he luckily was in that little hallway again with a shot, but he didn't know that when he hit the shot. So if he'd primed himself by getting mad when he put it in the bush off of 10T and then he's got to pitch out, then he leaves it short. If he's letting all these negative things build, then when he walks up on 11T and does that, he might explode in frustration. You're just putting more and more air in the balloon and it's going to pop eventually. You've got to have a mechanism for letting the air out of the balloon. And that's just, again, pretty much is just being aware of what's actually going on physiologically and then having a skill to combat it. I'll tell you, I don't even think I ever told you this story, Scott, because it was so embarrassing, but this taught me, I'm going to say this, I don't think I've ever told this story in any public way, but it'll be embarrassing for me, but it's an example of, I guess, what could happen in a tournament and how you can learn from it. And then getting back to trying to control what you can and being mindful of the situation. So that tournament we talked about, Scott, that it was the 2018 Long Island Open. I called you the day before and I was like, this is a big tournament for me. Like, I don't really belong here, but I got into it. It's a pro tournament, whatever. And you just kind of like calmed me down. Well, I went out that day, <laughs> the next day, and I just got so shell-shocked by the course. The greens were running at a 15. It was just, it was very overwhelming for me, the, the green speeds. And it was at a point where I did not have great control of fast greens because I hadn't played it off high in tournaments like that. But the problem of the day was, is my playing partner, one of them, he was this young guy who was trying to be a playing professional. He took about two to two and a half minutes before every shot. It was insane. And we got put on the clock by the sixth or seventh hole. Me and my playing partner were like, wow, this is bad. And my big pet peeve on the golf course is time. I hate wasting other people's time in life in general and in the golf course. And I just got so obsessed with this guy, just like looking at him. And I'm like, we got to get moving. And he just would not play faster. He kept losing balls and his pre-shot routine would not change. And it just got so deep in my head. And like we got, I'll wrap up the story really quickly with the embarrassing part, but I think I was eight or nine over and you get two rounds of this tournament and there's a cut. And this was the first round we got to the 15th hole and there were three groups behind us on the tee and we were about to get penalized and I pulled my tee shot and we went to find it and we couldn't find it. And I was just so like, I looked back on the tee box and the guy from the governing body was with me. He's like, let's go back. You can retee it. He's like, I'm like, I can't go back there. And I pride myself, I pride myself as someone who never gives up 
in golf and tournaments in general. I've never withdrawn from any tournament, but I told the guy, I'm like, I just can't go back there right now. I was so like, I just can't face those guys, whatever. It was, it was a crazy moment. And I'm like, I'm just going to leave. And I walked off the course. As soon as I got to my car, I like felt immense guilt and regret. And I, I felt really stupid. And I know people saw like withdraw on there. And like, I remember Woody, who's our club fitting guy on the show. He texted me. He's like, are you okay? Like, did you get injured? I'm like, no, I walked off the course. He's like, what happened? But it taught me the point of the story is like, it was very embarrassing. I emailed the other playing partner after I'm like, I'm so sorry about that. I should have never walked out. I do like that. It was just a ridiculous situation, but it taught me that like, I needed to place my emphasis on me and stop looking at this other guy. And when I am in these situations, I'm confronted with a lot of slow players in tournaments. I just look off to the side now. I'll look at it. I'll stare at a tree. I'll do something. I'll hum a song. I'll do something to occupy my mind. But that that was a very painful lesson for me. I am, even though I play the social media bad guy, I'm bizarrely preoccupied with not wanting anyone around me to be like for me to not be the slow play guy or like, I'm so, I hate, I, I can't <laughs> lean, I can't lean an airplane seat backwards. I can't consciously make somebody else uncomfortable, like in real life. I can do it on Twitter, but I really can't do it in real life. <laughs> in the 2008 US Mid-Am, I shot 29 the first nine, the first day, shot 66 the first day and came out the next day, played Brown Deer Park and the guy that we were just, we were on the clock all day. Like it just sucked so much. It was And that's going to happen if you play tournaments. It's just going to happen. I hit every green on the front nine and turned it like two over. And I basically just mailed it in with, well, I'm not going to be medalist. So, I mean, who cares? Like, and I could not have been any less into the round than I was purely because of the slow play. I wound up hitting every green that day, shot 75 And if I remember correctly, I missed being medalist by like two. And again, like I would like to win a U.S. mid-am medalist. Again, I'd rather win the match play portion of it. But in hindsight, I was like, what did you just do? Like you didn't even like I'm not going to say I quit, but I basically quit. Like I knew I'm not I'm going to make match play. Just get me out of here. And I was just so pissed off and I had no ability, zero ability to let it go. I mean, and that's, again, a spot where if I had a little bit more presence like I do now, I'd be interested to see how I handle it because I definitely have never handled being on the clock well because it just literally eats me up inside where I can't handle it. I've got my own little story that I think people can learn from tournaments. Let, as it, well. let it rip. People love hearing embarrassing stories because you know what? If you're going to tee it up in a tournament, I guarantee you you're going to have a moment that makes you want to curl into a fetal position and just melt away. It's just, and everyone who tees it up is going to have the same experience, but that's just golf. Go ahead, Adam. This is an embarrassing rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it. So, <laughs> so not like my story where I just walked off the course. <laughs> hey, if I'd been out of it, I would have walked off too. So I'm, I'm not pointing fingers. So as a junior, I was playing in a tournament. It was all the way in North Wales. So it was a good three hour drive I think so you know it was quite a big tournament it was a lot of mental prep getting there you're bigging yourself up because you're like this is a you know I'm having to travel a long way for it you warm up and I get onto the first tee and it's it's on the ninth we're starting on the ninth so I have to do a long walk and because it's a long walk there's lots of people waiting on that first tee because they want to get there early make sure they're there on time so there were about three groups teeing off 
and it was raining so it was kind of building up there were more and more people starting to travel and get and get there so by the time I teed off there's quite a group of people watching me and the first ball I hit left out of bounds I'm like oh my god I've traveled three hours for this tournament and I've just ruined it with my first shot so I tee up another one left out of bounds I'm like oh you are kidding me tee up another one left out of bounds oh. <laughs> scott would have snapped his driver over his well leg. as a junior yeah i was very close <laughs> i was to, in his but... group i would have snapped his driver <laughs> <laughs> they were, yeah so they were you know i think i had the fifth ball i teed or the fourth ball i teed up i think was a yellow dunlop ddh because that's all i had left in my bag classic and so you can imagine what people are thinking you know this is a big county tournament and i've just whacked the first three balls out of bounds i finally get the fourth off the tee scuttle it up there and i take 11. So at that point, I kind of, I wouldn't say gave up, right? Out of frustration with myself, I said, I'm going to force myself to grind this out or to continue, like almost as a punishment to myself. I'm like, you just, you just played so bad for the first hole. I'm going to make you stick with this to see what score you're going to get. But at the same time, I'd lost that care <laughs> that caring so much because the game was over and I think that for whatever reason that was just the perfect mix because I was not giving up yet at the same time I wasn't caring so much and I ended up for the next 17 holes I played the best round of my life and I finished second in the tournament I can't remember what it was exactly but it was hammering it down with rain the whole day so everybody else was kind of giving up which kind of helped but I forced myself like I said out of punishment to myself I have to stick with this and see what I get so that taught me a lot of things it told me not to be so nervous on the first tee because you might hit a ball out of bounds it could be on the first tee it could be on the last tee doesn't really matter but adversity is going to happen during a round and you never know what's going to happen for the next few holes it taught me also to never give up and it taught me to also try and just relax through the round and stop trying to expect so much, stop trying to make these tournaments into such a big deal. And I think that single experience taught me so many different things that has just carried through life as well, but definitely into other areas of golf. I know we talked about that in our grid episode is that the best habit I try and do other than that tournament, the only one I walked out on, which I still regret and I'll admit it publicly now is that no matter what happens, I always try and stay engaged in the tournament rounds or even regular rounds is because I feel like there's always the habit you have to create. And I've had so many tournaments where I wanted to walk off after six holes where I'm like, this is a disaster. USGA events where I didn't want to get the letter. And every time I've just, what you do, you just swallow deep and you're like, I'm not going to let, I just can't give up on this. And then, you know, I've managed to, save a lot of those rounds and not get the letter and keep it in the seventies. But yeah, I think that's a super important habit to have. I mean, in golf in general, specifically in tournaments is that if you get in the habit of like teeing off with that expectation in mind of like, I'm making the number or not. And then anything other than that is a failure. You're going to create a really crappy habit where you start to lose engagement in the round, which again, I think there's something to be learned. So even in the rounds where you're not going to quote unquote, make it, by staying engaged in it and keeping the fight going and just, you know, going through your process, you can use that in another round where things are maybe going too well and you're rattled because of that. So I I just think there's always something to be learned versus just being like, oh, I'm not going to make it, you know, I'm packing it in mentally for the day. 
Well, again, it just now it's a Naval Ravikant quote, habits are everything. I mean, how you do anything is how you do everything. And again, 72 hole tournaments, you're just, you aren't going to win a 72 hole tournament without facing some adversity for like a six to nine hole stretch. I mean, you're just going to, and like you just said, John, learning the skills of, okay, when that happens, what am I going to do? Okay, well, don't do that anymore. Whatever that just happened, don't do that. But now let's find what's next. Let's find something that works and you just keep coming back. And again, I do think, you know, that's what I posted on Twitter after Zalatoris missed that, you know, it was an eight foot, four inch putt is Lou Stagner with all of his great stats work shows late in the day on Sunday on Poe. Those putts just aren't made very often. I mean, they're just not made very often. And it's not like if you and I were flipping coins, eight feet generically is 50-50. Eight feet in that setting is probably, I mean, literally making up a number here, 40%, 42 or 3%. If you and I were sitting here flipping coins and I guessed heads and it came up tails, I wouldn't second guess myself at all. Will hit a putt that was good enough, it had a chance to go in. If he hit that putt a million times and the bounces all evened out, that putt would go in about half the time probably. He hit a good enough putt. It's easy to say he should have hit it a little bit harder. I don't disagree with that, but he got it there. And technically your range of speed outcomes on that putt should be from about an inch past the hole to maybe two feet past. It's just going to be hard to hit that putt late in the day, uphill, two feet past the hole, you would have to murder it to hit it that far past. So sure, he didn't hit the best putt, but he didn't hit a putt that's worth, did I choke? Twitter, the world's on fire. No, I I hit a putt, it didn't work out. And that's what I post on Twitter. Like, that's what makes Will great. He'll take that, he'll learn from it, he'll go tee it up next week and he'll see what happens (laughs) or he'll catch COVID and not tee it up next week. You know what I've found is one of the hardest things to do, I guess this is my next frontier of of experiences and i have so much respect for golfers who could do this is backing up a good round with another good round like that is i had several times in the 2021 season where i came out hot in multiple round events i think i was tied for fourth after the first round of the new york state mid-am i was top 10 at the long island mid-am you have those rounds where you play well and things seem easy and then the next day Let's say I wasn't, I was driving it great the first day. I'm like, oh, now my driver's not as good. It's like something's uncomfortable that day and you have to fight through that. I find that to be the next level for me in terms of experiences. Like if I play well in a less than 24 hour time span where you do have to go back and play another round, like having the expectation of now I'm in it and then you're not going to be feeling as comfortable the next day, probably with your swing or your technique is fighting through that. Like that's, That to me is one of the things that I'm starting to learn more of, but I have a lot of, you know, when you see it on TV and they're like, you see the guy who comes out 65 and then he comes out again, 66, 67. I'm like, wow, that is so impressive. (laughs) But go look at how many other rounds that guy starts out 66, 71, like literally by definition, when the announcers are freaking out, man, why, why is it so hard to back up, you know, good rounds? Like, well, why is it so hard if I told you to, out of a deck of cards to pick out a heart? Technically, you've got a 25% chance. Now I say pick out another one. Well, 25% times 25% is not much. Yeah, no, it's your outcome distribution. I know that for sure. But I'm, I'm talking about being uncomfortable with the good round to begin with. 
No, no, I know. Yeah. But I'm saying rather than the story you're telling, and again, I'm not saying you specifically, I'm saying in general, like, why can't I ever back up a good round with a good round? Because by definition, that's hard to do. Let's even give you credit saying I'm playing well. So rather than a 20% chance the first round, well, now I'm playing well. So what are we going to bump that to? 30%? 40% you're kidding yourself if you think just because you think you're playing well that your distribution goes that far left. So let's even say it was 20% and then 30%. Well, 0.2 times 0.3 is point not much. <laughs> like it just doesn't happen. I would say to elaborate, I would say my mental scorecard on the second round was much worse because of that. So I was I was uncomfortable. It was a new situation for me. But that's the point though, is also we implode a lot of 70s Again, making up a number, whatever's relative to you. Let's say your scoring average is 71. You know, you're a tour player, it's 71. You open with 65. You want to shoot another 65 so you can be leading through 36, but by definition, you're probably not going to. I could tell you that on the first tee. Well, rather than turning a 68, 9, or 70 into a 71, 2, or 3, which that's a huge difference because you're like, why can't I ever back? Again, I'm not saying you, I'm saying in general. Why can't I back up this good first round with another good round? Because by definition, that doesn't happen much. And so what we've got to do, again, back to the mental scorecard, like you just said, stay present, stay out of results, stay out of the future, stay out of the past, hit this next shot. Well, and again, that's back to Zalatoris. When he was a junior golfer, he was kind of a powder. Like it was hard. He was a tough one for me. Like there were times I'd be like, dude, just go pout, do whatever you got to do. And then give me 30 seconds. I'll tell you exactly what to do. Give me 30 seconds of intense focus, hit the shot, and then go back to pouting if you want to. I don't really care. Again, I'm not saying that's ideal, but we all think Spieth Spieth had a pretty good run doing that. The year that he won the Masters in the U.S. Open, I mean, if you go back, it's 2015. Okay, wow, he didn't win the the Grand Slam. I'm so surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But then he went into the FedEx Cup, and he was like, I have to win the FedEx Cup with the year I've had. If I don't, it's a total failed year. And he missed the first two cuts, if you remember. And I've literally got video that I've recorded that I don't think I've ever put a video in the decade app from it, but they're even saying on like golf central, they're like, I mean, they've got just all these images of him just freaking out and like, Oh, I can't believe that putt didn't break. And like really not being Jordan. Cause he's an intense grinder, but he can definitely get a little pouty out there too. And those first two events, the FedEx cup playoffs that, that year, he was just a mental midget. And again, I can say that. I think he would say that of himself looking back, but then he did pull it back together, went back to basics and either won the third event or the tour championship to actually win the FedEx cup. I'm pretty sure that year. Yay, Jordan, you're rich. <laughs> Cause I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> he's made, he's made it two hours into this podcast of this three idiots. You never in. know. We got to, we have a growing worldwide <laughs> audience guy. You never Perfect. know. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll still say hi if I see him next time. <laughs> well, have you guys heard of the, the psychological principle of optimal arousal? So there's, you know, you can be not aroused enough where you're not amped up enough. And then you can have the yeah. other end of the scale where you're too amped up. And I think it's just about being aware of where you are in that place. Well, that's what tournament, we've, we've discussed this before on the pod, the arousal state. That I think that's what tournament golf gets you into it gets you into a much more aroused state than you can all wild swing all wild swings (laughs) yeah you're moving back and forth between so many emotions especially if you're not as experienced and i'm still trying to gain this experience is that that's what it tricks you into doing is that it's a completely different subset of golf that 
can move you more if you're someone who struggles with emotional extremes and even a, a recreational round, like, you know, a tournament round, everything's just heightened even more. So like, yeah, that's been my problem where it's like, if something's new and unfamiliar, the spectrum of my emotions is too wide. And as I get more comfortable with it and I've seen it and realize it, then I can adjust for the next time and say, okay, I've been through this before. I'm not going to hopefully make that mental mistake again. It's really hard, I have to say. It's very challenging. And I think one fallacy that people make, and, and honestly, I'm about to tell the not surprising road rage story from today, actually. <laughs> but today I was driving down the tollway and this guy just came blowing up behind me and got, I'm not kidding, like a foot off my bumper. I mean, I'm just going like 85. It's not like I was crawling and I wasn't even in the left lane. And this guy <laughs> just gets right on my butt and I'm like, okay, we're about to go 10. And I just slammed on the brakes and I just kept slowing down. He was kind of blocked in behind me and I literally got it to where we were going at 40. And I had this adrenaline rush to where like my hands weren't shaking, but like the difference in like when people say, well, do high intensity training and get your heart rate up and then try to slow it down and hit putts. Like, well, that's a different heart rate. My heart was yeah. racing because of adrenaline. And I swear to you, as I was driving, I was like, man, I wish I had a putter right now. I'd want to go off and just like actually sit on the side of the highway and see what my hands feel like with this. Cause I was like, I was ready for this guy to follow me off the tollway and we were going to see if he had a gun or if he was going to kick my ass because he was not <laughs> happy. <laughs> but I'm like, what are you doing? But that's the thing is learning to control that range of emotions. Like you guys were just talking about. That's when you make a long putt in golf. Now, I don't know how Tiger did it, man, doing all that crazy fist pumping stuff. And then to have, because most people, if you do that, your adrenaline is going to just be bursting through your veins and like calming yourself down in a couple minutes to hit a golf shot is not an easy thing to do. But honestly, it was a I've, really, there's some, there has my, my theory in that is there's something genetically inside of him that we don't understand yet that he has. He's been meditating since he was have. born, getting back. And, to, and his, and his experiences in life. I think it's a probably a combination of the both. There's no doubt. I mean, but again, this was, what was a cool deal for me is actively was like, you know, this is a learning experience right now. Like I want to see, cause I used to think back in, I can remember playing in the 1999 US Open and thinking, Tiger's not nervous. Like that's, I need to be able to get to a spot where I'm not nervous. And I was constantly trying to not be nervous. And it's not that you don't want to not be nervous, but you have to like welcome the nerves. Most importantly, you just need to know how to deal with them. You have to have a plan. I had no plan. And I now think that meditation is my plan, but I still haven't put myself in a situation in a long time with like adrenaline like that coursing through my veins where I'm not, again, I'm not saying my hands were shaking, but I bet they weren't far from it. And I, it took me probably about three minutes, but I got all of it out of my system through conscious effort. Again, I don't know if that same thing would work through into a golf tournament because then you're just constantly being put back in that same arena. But it was a pretty unique thing that I was aware of it and I was able to get rid of it. And I just think that a guy like Tiger, he probably does have a disposal, like a beyond extraordinary disposal mechanism within his body. I'm the opposite end of the spectrum. I get nervous at the smallest thing. I'm such, maybe it's being <laughs> introvert, but I know you talk about poker and I can play poker and just have, be fun with it. I have fun with it. And I started playing online at one point and I was playing for just maybe five cents or something. And my <laughs> hands were shaking like hell doing it. Honestly, that's just who I am. Even if I go and play around the golf, on my own, I'm absolutely fine. If I team up with someone, I'm nervous. They could be a 20 handicapper and I can feel adrenaline from it. I've never thought about, honestly, a good exercise for me because it is hard to recreate, you know, game-like atmosphere and practice. I mean, I know and you're probably 
on this a little bit of like, well, you got to make a hundred three footers in a row or you can't leave. And I'll say like, it's exhausting. You get down to those last five and you're more nervous. It still isn't like a golf tournament though, but I never really thought about trying to play in some team events because it is different. You don't want to let your partner down. That might be actually a pretty good practice mechanism for me. I actually spoke the Baltimore Ravens kicker. God, what's his name? I should know it. Whatever his name is. Huh? Is it Tucker? I no, the, no, the one that won the Super Bowls back in the back in oh, the day. Oh, when they. Gosh dang it! He lives here in Dallas now. Sorry if you're listening. I, know I love talking. I I had NFL kickers are great. I had a very long conversation with an NFL kicker about golf and kicking. It's because it's, it's similar. Yeah, we got loads of I'm Brits listening. We don't care about kickers. Just, yeah. just give us a story. Gosh dang it! I was, well, I was trying to find it over here real quick, but it's only giving me Justin Tucker. So the story was we were speaking, both speaking at the whatever the Baltimore PGA section was, and he spoke in front of me and he said we used to do these training drills where we would simulate, you know, game like situations. And I'm like, you know, I've heard that before in golf and I just don't, I don't see how you really do it. What's a concrete example of how you would up the ante up the pressure in practice. He's like, well, I had to kick a 42 yarder to end most practices. And if I didn't, everyone else had to run a mile. He's like, get Ray Lewis looking at you saying, I don't want to run a mile right now. I'm tired. And he's like, it wasn't quite game-like, but it was pretty damn close. And I'm like, see, that's game-like. You're going to let your entire team down if you don't make this relatively benign kick. That's good. I just I don't see how you really up the stakes in practice that much in golf. You can, but not quite to game level. I've got two examples of that. One is group coaching that I used to run in Santa Barbara. So we used to do that. Exactly. You'd have two teams and everybody would stand into a bay and hit a shot and they would get points depending on the outcome. So there's the pressure of everybody watching. You might have 10 people watching you. And there's also the pressure of letting your teammate down. So there is very often that people would say they feel more pressure in group coaching than they do on a golf course in a tournament. So we were able to increase the pressure that way. I've even found they're just doing something like a trackman combine. Because that score is posted to a worldwide leaderboard, I remember being on the verge of hitting 90 quite a few times, and I would be shaking. I'd have to hit that last drive. I'm like, if I get this, my name is posted in white lights here forever. And so <laughs> it, it was only a Trackman combine, but at least it, it, for me, yeah, it's no, like... People take that combine seriously. Hey, man, I was show, I'm showing the world how good a striker I am here. So it's, it was a big thing for me. It goes back to that ego. I shouldn't really care, but we do as humans, right? Hey, well, how, how much do you and me care about our VR ping pong rankings? Let's be serious. I've never a been a I've never been a combine or a skills drill kind of guy. I just love practicing. Like I can just go practice for three hours and not think twice. I don't need to, you know, gamify it, if you will. But to now sell you the decade app, we did bring Chris's Ambry's combines from when he was the head coach at USC for 14 years. We I brought them in the app. Me. Yeah, we brought them in the app last year. But before I said you know, we talked about it, but I was like, well, I just, I at least want to do them before I just sign off on this because we're going to pay them a decent amount of money for them. And I'm on record prior to that being like, I don't care about combines. And I had to kind of eat my words and be like, damn it, this was pretty fun. And it definitely upped the stakes trying to not embarrass yourself. I tell Zambri all the time, I'm a great ball striker. Well, then show me, show me your number on the line skills test. And it is, it definitely like whenever you're coming in on your own personal best or something like mm -hmm. that. It does up the stakes for sure. 
And again, anything you can do like that. And I never thought about, it. I've, I've got a quad. I assume they have some sort of a national they skills do, yeah. competition. Yeah, I use that. That would I be a great way for me to practice that. That's a good idea. I mean, that's part of whenever I do these Instagram lives, it's not like I get that many people, but I got a hundred people watching me hit balls. I well, sure yeah. don't want to shank one. I mean, they're not live, but they're sitting here watching me hit balls in my simulator and yeah, I mean, I, I'm doing that partially for that reason to try to, you know, I'm doing answering questions and everything as I go along, but I'm also doing it just to up the stakes a little bit. Well, I think it's an important thing to consider with, you know, embarking on competitive golf is that, you know, all the golfers I know that I've become friends with who play in the tournaments I play in, like, let's face it, we're all kind of like junkies in a little bit. Like we genuinely- Kind of? Yeah. I mean, the only reason you'd be playing in these events is that- if you keep subjecting yourself to it is that you enjoy this adrenaline rush that you're getting and it's making you feel it's like this heightened experience of golf that you just can't get. You just can't get it in a normal round. And that might be bad for some people, for some people that might not be worth it. And you say like, this is not a a good idea for you to embark on this. And for others who are a little crazy, like I'm not an adrenaline junkie in terms of like doing extreme, like skiing stuff because I'm just too risk averse. Like I would never do anything that would harm my body to get like my kicks off of that. But with golf, like, yeah, I'm a little, I'll be honest with it. I'm a little addicted to it at this point And I enjoy it. Like I like feeling that rush of being there. Like I derive genuine enjoyment out of the experience. It's something I look back on fondly because it's just a way to test myself. You know, why do I do that? I mean, we can get a psychologist on the show and go through it maybe, but there's Perfect. definitely like, you do have to have this element of like, you know, maybe, enjoying what that makes you feel like good and bad because it's going to happen everybody can do the live thing i've done it as well where you know my paying members of next level golf i've done a live for them and i'm hitting balls on the simulator and you certainly feel something different i mean even the act of setting up your camera on the range and videoing your own swing will make you feel different things maybe not a hell of a lot of pressure but there's an observer effect there even if the observer is a camera and so everybody here who has an Instagram can set up an Instagram live and hit some shots. Now they might get one viewer, but it doesn't matter. You will feel something different knowing that there could potentially be someone watching there. So that's just a little trick that you could do for all the listeners to try and encourage or simulate that pressure. Well, I've got something I could say right now and make John absolutely cringe, but I think I'll. I thought you I'll said you didn't like it. making <laughs> people uncomfortable. Yeah, you come on. Okay, go on, give it, give just, it to us. That's what I enjoy. She just wants to come on here and make me uncomfortable. People I don't know. Oh, and by the way, Matt Stover. Matt Stover that's is the, the kicker. kicker. I actually spent time with Ryan Longwell, who was a longtime kicker for the Packers and the Vikings. I played in a tournament with him down in Bermuda. And he just, he had great stories for me about sports in general, because I asked him about like everyone in sports and I can't divulge what he said, but I did ask him about like, because I thought in terms of of being a place kicker in the NFL, I'm like, that's not too dissimilar to the golf where like, you're not reacting necessarily. It's like you're called up a few times, you're not initiating the the action, you have a lot of time to think. And his answer to me was, is like, we obsessed in practice over routine. He's like, every single kick I did in practice, you can put a stopwatch on it. It'd be the same exact thing in the game. And during the game, as we would move up and down the field, I would just be following my offense and going through that routine over and over and over again. So that when I had to kick in the Super Bowl or wherever, 
it was the same exact thing over and over and over again. I was like, because I asked him, like, how did you deal with kicking in front of 50,000 people and being the guy who could ruin a game or win a game? Like, it's probably one of the most uncomfortable positions in all sports. And that was his answer, aside pretty much. Field goal kicking, pitchers, and golfers. Yeah, and we had sports psychology yep. is very, very the, similar. And the pitcher I spoke to said the same exact thing. I never would have thought about like I've timed thousands of Tigers pre-shot routines looking for stuff. But then in talking with Matt Stover that one day, and I never would have thought about this again, there's just so many nuances of games that you don't know. And he's like, well, my standard deal, and I'm making up this number. I don't remember exactly what it was. He's like, my standard time was 26 seconds. Like that's what I needed to get out there, get situated. And that was my pre-shot routine. I had a quick one that was 13 seconds or something like that. But he's like, my make rate, you know, just plummeted. And anything less than 13, like you may as well try a Hail Mary coach because it ain't going to happen. I mean, you just <laughs> and it's just crazy to think of like all these sports are so similar. I, I sat next to Jaime Garcia, who was a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals when they won the World Series on a flight. And it was just crazy talking to him because I don't know anything about pitching. But as we just went through this conversation, it was just like it's all the same. You've got to get the parlance and the lingo down. But it's just all the exact same stuff. And again, presence and you know, just again, it's just all the same. Well, routines in themselves give you something to focus on. Yeah. Well, it's funny listening because like what John just said there, like how you're the guy that 50,000 people in the game's leaning on. Like I have the exact same thought processes and that's the reason we're not kicking the NFL amongst other reasons. But it's like those guys are like, yeah, that's what we're trying not to think about. So you've got to occupy your brain with something else. Yeah. And it's just crazy to the layperson. How do you do that? Well, I don't know, about 26 years of work. Like it's not a magical switch that just flips on. Zalatoris didn't float around the, the final round at the Masters, making it look as easy as he did, just because that was the first time he had done it. He had been doing that for, I would say, since the first round of the Texas Amateur in 2014 when I first caddied for him. That's what we were building for was that exact day. Well, I think every golfer, whatever level they're playing, and especially in tournaments, can aspire to make their own little systems and routines. I have my you know, little, sometimes peculiar things that I do with putting or whatever, and just things that give me comfort I've stumbled upon. But again, it's the repetition of it, the experience, the embarrassment, the failures, and then kind of thinking about what happened and adjusting for next time might be a process that sounds horrible to some people. And like, yeah, don't do it. And then for other people, it's like, yeah, this could be another avenue of golf I can pursue. But yeah, I think that's yeah, the pro athlete example is super extreme because they're dealing with way more pressure. But, you know, you can make your own version of that. You can make your own routine and your own little system. And certainly Scott's system is helpful to people. And, you know, the stuff that Adam and I talk about the show, we always give you ideas on that. But, yeah, a lot of it, that's what it boils down to is just get up to the damn ball, do the same thing over and over again, hit it, accept the result and move on to the next one. It's It's so simple. And I know, Scott, that's what you say to people, too. But. There's not much else you could it's do. It's supposed to be boring. Yeah, it's supposed I mean, exactly. Point, it's supposed it's, to be boring. It, it is supposed to be boring because if it's boring, then that means it's normal and familiar. And if it's not boring where you're like either terrified or not engaged at all, like getting back to Adam's original point, like the state of arousal, well, then you're not going to perform well. Pretty much. 
<laughs> Two hours and nine minutes in. What do you think we yeah. wrap it up here? I've actually got to write an article for Golf Magazine okay, on the yeah. Masters. I think, I think we, we, we've taken up enough time. I'm sure that we, we probably didn't get to many questions. I think one of the quick ones was like, and you've said this a million times, Scott, like if you're playing a match play event or best ball, do you change your strategy? And I think the answer is no, right? <laughs> like, I don't think it makes sense. And again, this is one thing I do have some issues with a few of the other data type people out there. I understand game theory. Like I've taken online classes from MIT on game theory. I get it. Game theory when applied to golf, a sport when you don't have a shared ball, you don't have a mutual clock. There's just a lot of things you just, yeah, I get it. And that looks great on paper. Now go apply it in real time in a golf tournament. And it's just really, really hard to do. And that's why I say, you know what? Just stick to whatever your process is. Obviously, I think Duckett does a great job of picking targets, but just stick to the same thing every single time. You know, people are like, well, what if I'm two down with two to go? You should have played the first 16 holes better. I don't know. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, at that point, you're yeah. probably it's like, not going to win yeah, it. You're not going like, to create some magical scenario to undo all of that. Yeah, you just have to keep going with the same thing over and over and over again. And again, that's why, think about it. If you had a 3% win rate on the PGA Tour, that's winning one every 30 or so starts. That's literally winning once every 18 months. That's an incredible career. Like that's 3%. It, you just, you have the same, essentially the same odds of picking the ace of spades out of a deck of cards as a PGA Tour player, not even just us. I'm saying like, yeah, you just don't win very often and that's okay. And once you kind of understand that, and again, that same thing applies to you at whatever level you are. Like I was by far the best player at my home course and I think I won the club championship there. Like probably, I don't even know, four or so times out of the probably eight or so times I played in it, 10 times. I don't know. I still probably only won half the time I played in it. If that, I really don't remember. I haven't won mine yet. I've gotten knocked out in the first round by guys who are on heaters and I just couldn't beat them. Yeah. How time Welcome goes. to my USGA record. I, I've <laughs> lost in the first round of the US Mid-Am, I think four or five times now. And it's always been to a guy on a heater. It has been it has not been fun for me in USGA events. All right. So <laughs> I think we'll wrap up the discussion there. We've taken enough of Scott's time. Do you have any closing statements, Adam, Scott? Not really. Adam, Adam, I, think, I, didn't, uh, I didn't ask Adam Scott, the professional golfer. I meant Adam, comma, Scott. <laughs> like, damn it, we've had him quiet this whole time. Yeah, he's been on the he's, phone. He's hanging out. Adam, what do you what think about all this? Doing? Masters champion, former number one player in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we just ate up the microphone. All right, guys, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, as always. Let me know whenever yeah, I can do it. Thanks for coming on. It's a good chat. All right, and we'll wrap it up there. Adam, where can they find you? If you go to adamyounggolf.com, look for the next level golf course, NLG, because I've got lots of information on routines, monitoring thoughts, peaking for tournaments as well, and games that create that adrenaline rush in you. So adamyounggolf.com, next level golf. Scott, everyone can find you at playinglesson.com. Is no, it? you're ready for this one? What? I finally did it decade.golf. Oh my God. It only, it only took yeah. like five years. Didn't I tell you to do and, that like six years ago? <laughs> well, you told me six years ago that if you wrote an, a paper for an article for me, it would always be the top hit. And it <laughs> basically still is. I think if you search my name, I think a golf digest one finally overtook you. That's okay. If you, yeah, actually birdie fire, we finally took you over, but you are the second hit. If you search my name. Nice. All right. Well, there's there's a con man out of Florida that, that literally was like in some sort of he's in prison now, but 
he used to be peppered on the first few pages. And I'm like, at least we finally got that Scott Fawcett <laughs> out of here. He, he owes me money for getting his name. He can now he can go back to conning people. Well, definitely check out Decade. It's been uh, helpful to me and thousands of other golfers around the planet. You can find me at practical-golf.com. And again, I just want to thank our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can find all of your indoor golf needs at their website, shopindoorgolf.com. They're the experts when it comes to the best indoor golf simulators for your home, your business. You can call them up, talk to their guys, Brian or Wade, who can help you find the best launch monitor, whether it's a high-end one like Foresight or you want to get maybe one of the entry-level ones like the newer Garmin or the SkyTrack or FlightScope models. They can help you with whatever budget you have and whatever size of your space is. So thanks again for their support, and you can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. Thanks again to our listeners for all the great questions and feedback. We will see you again soon with a new episode.